seeing that shift in body composition towards central adiposity, so waking around that central like lower belly area, and then also, as you said, in the chest, basically gynecomastia and, and excess fat tissue in the chest, uh, that's those are both telltale signs of excess stress hormones, which, as we we're saying, comes with excess estrogen and tends to also come with a lack of the androgenic hormones. So I'd say from the body composition side, you have that, and then either a lack of muscle mass or trouble putting on muscle being the telltale signs when we're looking at yeah, body composition. You can look at every kind of body system and see a parallel effect, like uh, strong focus like from the brain side, like strong focus, a good relaxed uh, demeanor, not getting angry at, at the drop of a pin sort of thing, like, uh, you know, that sort of ability to be relaxed and patient, but also have some assertion. I think that those are kind of characterizations I would make of more androgenic tone, essentially. Uh, whereas when you see more estrogen, and there's some uh, interesting research looking at personality and and hormones, but estrogen, you tend to have uh, a lot less of those, you know, like first trouble focusing and trouble concentration and that side of things, but also less patience, more prone to anger and things like that, which unfortunately, those are some of the things that people use to characterize androgenic men. Um, but, you know, I don't think that being angry is a good sign of that at all. Welcome to The Body Never Lies. I'm your host, Leela Lutz. Each week, myself and experts from around the world help you uncover the secret ways your body communicates with you to empower you in your own individual health journey. I feel like we've spent a lot of time on the show talking about women's physiology, but we've really been talking about general physiology, but we talk quite a lot about women and women's topic and how the body never lies about health. So I wanted to dedicate an episode especially for men. Can men really tolerate stress more than women, physiologically speaking? Is fasting more suitable for them than women? Why do men get man boobs? Why can't some men put on muscle mass and others can? Is there really such a thing as andropause, i.e. as you get older, your libido and everything decreases, just like women have a menopause. Are fish oils going to save men from neurodegenerative disease and heart issues? And what about the rage or even an ability, inability to express rage? What does this say about men and their health specifically? Well, today I have back on the show Jay Feldman to talk all about men's health and all the myths around men's health. And fellas, if this is your first time here, you might like to go back and listen to Jay's interview on the myths of the liver as a good follow-up to this one. Jay, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for coming on again to The Body Never Lies. Thanks for having me again, Leila. <laughs> so we are talking today, everybody, about men's health. And I feel like we've talked so much like a lot of stuff in the show has been directed at women and experts on women because women's health is quite complex. But I, I do work with men, Jay works with men, and it's really important that men are understanding about their body and how their body never lies to them about the state of their health as well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I yeah. think it's even more important to talk about it because I find with the male clients that I have worked with, and it could just be the type of male clients that I've worked with, they've either been, um, you know, high-end corporate or athletes who have had some kind of injury or burnout. And so there's definitely a, a mental kind of, you know, 
scope of those, that type of personality. But for me, and I don't know about you, Jay, but I find that the men that I've worked with have a much more no pain, no gain kind of push through pain kind of mentality yeah, than the women yeah. I've worked with. <laughs> and that I could be generalising again, so I'd love to hear what your male clients are like. And also, but just this thing of not talking about you know, they're, they're less likely to go to the doctor. We know that for a fact. They're less likely to go to the doctor about something. They're less likely to talk about something. And so often when they come and see someone talk, like you or me, I feel like they're a lot further down the line than, you know, they could have asked for help a very long time ago. Um, what do you think? What, what's your experience with working with men in that sort of mentality? Yeah, I think... There's certainly something there as far as more of a tendency to push through things or ignore things, right? You, you kind of start with that premise of the body never lies. And I think that's a great premise to start with. And then the question is, are you going to listen to it? Right. And uh, I, I do think, as you said, there's very much a tendency to push through. I think also much like for women, aspects of dysfunction or suboptimal health are normalized and mm-hmm. what we call healthy isn't always healthy. And so I think there's part of that too, but so, so I think that's part of it maybe is, is uh, just feeling like, you know, there is nothing wrong or kind of ignoring some of those maybe warning signs or some smaller symptoms, but there also is the mentality, as you said, of pushing through the little things, the aches and pains or the tiredness or the stress and not allowing those things to be legitimate signals that help you, you know, tell you when to pump the brakes and, and I think a lot of women do that as well, of course, you know, kind of push through those things for various reasons. And, and I definitely think men can do it as well. And uh, I think you see that a lot as well with biohacking, like that whole sphere and the Wim Hof breathing and cold mm-hmm. plunges and everything. I think that tends to be a male dominated sphere. And I think that that is a pretty, uh, pretty strong illustration of exactly what you're saying. This idea that of you know pushing through the pain to get the result uh, and of course it happens with physique and fitness as well just that same idea and i think as you're kind of getting at there's a cost to that mm, there is a cost to that and probably something we can come back and talk to probably yeah. the, some myths around cold cold water therapy and uh, <laughs> yeah, that yeah. kind of intense breathing because men do really gravitate more to that kind of um, practice more so than women um, and I see a lot of men's retreats now where all the men are getting together and doing the Wim Hof and doing the ice baths and stuff like that. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but I think it's important for us to talk about the context of those things always. So yeah. coming coming back to men and women, I mean, we are different. And I think that it's really important to recognise those differences. And um, I, I think that's helped women a lot is saying that women are not small men and recognising their hormonal cycles and how different they are than men because they're different for a reason, for a purpose, you know. Um, so interesting, I was listening to an Aboriginal elder, so an Indigenous Australian, talk about one of the problems that he sees in white culture in Australia is that Aboriginal men really honour women, like they're, they cannot exist without women and they're this amazing species and they're, they have great wisdom and so they honour their 
cycles and they honour everything like that makes them women and makes them different and obviously they have the same practices for men and that's one of the things about beautiful about indigenous some indigenous cultures um but let's talk about some of the differences between men and women because we talk a lot about on the show how things that affect women's health and the signs that they might look at so you know their menstrual cycles and uh, their libido and you know their skin their hair their nails like all these things and um, things maybe that men not, might not care about so much because women tend to generally care about how they look a bit more than women do a bit more than men do sorry what would you say things that men can look out for in those body physiology responses to, to stress and health yeah, I think most of the symptoms we're looking at like are, are the same set of symptoms, right? Uh, some of the basic signs of low metabolism, meaning there being cold body temperature, cold hands and feet, trouble focusing, uh, low energy. We were talking about this earlier, needing to run on coffee or any sort of stress-inducing mechanism, whether it's Wim Hof breathing or you know the the cold ice plunge, and or uh, again something like coffee or some sort of stimulant to get through the day. Those are all generally signs of of uh, low energy and relying on our adrenal stress systems to kind of get us through. And of course, you have other symptoms that you mentioned as well. Uh, you know, skin, hair, and nails, uh, hair. Uh, well, yeah, hair, hair, and nails. Um, I would say also again, you have the sexual reproductive side. And most of the symptoms are parallel, right? Low, low libido, low sex drive, trouble with performance. But one thing that I think allows, at least in that regard, for men to ignore and push through a little bit harder or faster is that some of these symptoms tend to be less apparent, right? So women, first off, you have a monthly cycle that tells you exactly what's going on. And it's not necessarily symptoms that are easy to ignore, right? They're often very much uh, apparent, very present. And that makes sense, right? And talking about some of those differences for women, as far as reproduction goes, a woman from, again, just from that reproductive side, a woman has to be metabolically and nutritionally capable of producing another human. And that's quite a feat. And obviously a man doesn't have quite the same role there. And so because of that, it takes a lot more typically to affect sexual function for men, uh, or at least it's not quite as apparent, but it certainly is there. And men, you know, as far as clients I see struggling with sex drive, struggling with libido tend to be pretty common byproducts of other issues. You know, another huge one being gut health and whether it's bloating or constipation or anything else along those lines, again, poor sleep. Uh, which tends to go along with the excess stress, pushing through things. These are all symptoms that tend to go together and, and are just as much signs of poor or struggling or suboptimal metabolic health for, for men as women. So we talk a lot about metabolic health on the show and for those people who are listening. And basically we're talking, you know, we might have a lot of new listeners. We're talking about men's stuff, but basically we're talking about the body's ability to um create energy from what you're putting into the body so that and that energy is used to create more cells which is what we're made up of it's a whole conglomerate of cells so that's our anti-aging process and our 
renewal process and as well as create muscle, um, grow hair, skin and nails, like all these functions that we have to perform. And then when we are in a low metabolic state, our body starts sacrificing these functions. And so we use them as practitioners to say, well, you know, how much energy does this person have and what can I do as a coach to help them get their energy back? So, but it's, speaking of that in terms of energy and we're talking about this adrenaline kind of complex like this let's talk a little bit about that because we're having we have live in this culture where we don't eat breakfast we just drink coffee (laughs) Uh, and I think that has become very acceptable for men too because there's this huge belief that fasting works better for men than it does for women and some would say it doesn't work for women at all but it works okay for men and so especially in that corporate space that I was working in with clients we would see a lot of men who would just get up in the morning and not eat breakfast have a coffee or two on the way to the office and wouldn't eat all about lunchtime let's just talk (laughs) a little bit about um, that you know process and what's wrong with that and um I think, yeah, I think definitely men are more attracted to that going without food for long periods of time and why that might be. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and I don't know if the the men you're describing were doing that intentionally or just kind of naturally mostly skipping breakfast and having coffee because I, I think both are pretty common. Uh, I think it's much more common for men to, as you said, just kind of skip breakfast. And then, of course, the intentional intermittent fasting, which is even like suggested as something to support hormonal health, which is very much not the case. And so as, as you're kind of saying, there's this notion that fasting comes at a cost for women. And I think that's because a lot of women kind of going back to that sensitivity we talked about before, we're noticing negative effects from trying intermittent fasting, especially on the hormonal side. And as we're kind of saying, it doesn't mean that the same thing isn't happening for for men, but just that it takes more to get to the point where you would notice it. And while that might be the case, you also do see it pretty clearly in the research that fasting causes those same uh, causes those same hormonal imbalances as it would for women. So you see the increased cortisol and stress hormones from fasting. You see the depressed thyroid activity from fasting. You see depressed androgens from fasting. And you also see, and this was a pretty notable study that came out somewhat recently uh, where they were looking at intermittent fasting on body composition, which is one of the major reasons why people are doing it is to lose body fat. And what they found was that the people in the intermittent fasting group lost more muscle mass and less body fat than the ones in the non-intermittent fasting group. And the head researcher was so uh, blown away and surprised at these uh, at, at the results at that he stopped suggesting that his patients do intermittent fasting. He stopped intermittent fasting himself. And he was someone who had been suggesting people to do it for years. You know, he was on the forefront of, of the, uh, intermittent fasting field. So, so I think people are maybe very slowly starting to come around to that, but it is just as harmful for men as women. It just maybe is less noticeable, um, but tends to be something that comes up over time. And the simple reason for that is that when we're not eating as much food, at least consistently, it acts as a stress signal. It acts as a sign to our bodies that they're not there is not good food available on a regular basis. And that drives stress in a way that decreases our metabolism, turns down that um, that knob controlling our metabolic rate. And uh, of course, 
in the short term, that doesn't necessarily happen. You know, you feel all energetic, just like running on the coffee, but over time that, uh, that becomes apparent. And, and as you, as you begin to burn out that stress system, you then really begin to see the the crash that tends to come after. I guess it's that we, when we're busy, we always want the easy fixed. And so like n- not eating, you're going, oh, I'm overweight and I need to lose weight. Okay, so I'll just not eat because that's easier <laughs> than thinking about what you should be doing. Um, and, yes, I think it's very apparent in the men that I worked with because living that corporate lifestyle, we're so busy and it's like I've just got to get up and I've got to get to the office. And, um, and I see this with women too is that we accidentally fast and so it can also be, not eating lunch, like maybe some may eat breakfast, but they don't eat a substantial enough breakfast and then they don't eat lunch, they don't eat all day and then they have this huge dinner because <laughs> they're absolutely starving. And um, so, you know, I guess we could talk a little bit about blood sugar dysregulation um, because I think, it's, again, it's a thing that women appear to suffer from a little bit more on the surface area, but men seem to be able to push through that a little bit more. And do you want to just elaborate on what's happening with blood sugar dysregulation when we're not eating consistently? And also, I mean, it ties back into fasting, really, what happens when there's not enough energy, what happens to our body composition, what happens to our stress hormones? Yeah, our blood sugar is one of those first barometers, the one of the first indicators that our bodies use to sense how energetically favorable is our environment, how good is our environment for supporting high metabolic function. And so when we go when we skip a meal, our blood sugar drops, or when we go any time too long without eating carbohydrates, our blood sugar drops. And our blood sugar is basically our or the sugar that's in our blood is the main fuel for our brain. And so it can't drop too far before there is a major crisis. So we've got these backup mechanisms that get kicked into play to bring the blood sugar back up. And that's our stress hormones and starts with glucagon. And then we have adrenaline and cortisol and growth hormone is kind of a, a, one of those as well. maybe we'll circle back to that later when we talk about hormone replacement. And so any time that we are allowing that blood sugar to drop and be propped up by the stress system, that is a, that acts as a signal that Again, there's not a lot of great food available. We don't have a lot of carbohydrates to power that energy production system. And it acts as a signal to decrease our metabolism. And so again, whether it's skipping breakfast or having breakfast and skipping lunch or just not having enough carbohydrates with the meals, all of those will have that same effect. And as you said, I think it's something that a lot of people get used to or a lot just get used to kind of pushing through whether it's intentional because they think that it's healthy or it's intentional because as you said they're putting other priorities or other things as priorities you know they're prioritizing other things like the corporate job right the money the and and understandably so right i mean there's there's not we're not given much of a choice in our society but uh obviously i think that's a major problem too. But yeah, I think the fact that we are prioritizing work so much and the amount of energy and effort that goes to that and comes at the cost of our health, I think becomes apparent in these kinds of situations. I don't know if it's that sexy to bring your lunch to work either. Is it? <laughs> that too. That too. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a lot. I mean, my, my, um, husband obviously takes his lunch to work when he goes into the office and everyone is amazed at how mm. much food he brings in and wow like wow like that's a real meal and so there's no sandwiches and you know stuff like that he's bringing <laughs> a lot of food because he I mean, goes to the gym at lunchtime and 
So it's it's really interesting. I always find the corporate view of fueling yourself and and taking care of yourself, and it's not something that's put place. There's not a lot of value placed on it. It's like we've got work to do. You know, eat later or you know whatever. And and I think that my my husband would eat a lot more food than his colleagues. And that surprises a lot of people, I think, as well. You know, so <laughs> there's there's a lot of, you know, feedback about corporate culture. Whereas in our work culture, Jay, I guess, like, you know, if we were at a conference together, we'd all take a break. We'd all bring our cool bags. We'd all <laughs> have our meals planned out and timed. And <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we'd yeah, be worried I mean, about <laughs> losing our muscle mass. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Of course, there's no pro metabolic uh, conferences yet, but I'm sure the first one will include like an orange juice fountain or something. You know? <laughs> right, and we're breaking every three hours so everyone can eat. Um, yeah. So yeah, I think this is really important, right? It's the it's the environment that we're in, it's the society that we're in that doesn't support the lifestyle that we should be living. It's pushed us so far away. And then, how do you, as a person, you know? carve a way where you can actually do what you need to do that's different from the society that you're in. And I think in corporate culture, that's really hard, um, but it's doable, of course. Um, and, of course, so then it's much more culturally acceptable in workplaces, I think, to be fasting and and doing all that kind of meal skipping and stuff like that and, and having those big corporate dinners or lunches or whatever. So there's this real inconsistency with how much energy is going out and how much energy is coming in. And I think it's a shame, right, because so many men think weight loss is really complex or changing their body composition, like putting on muscle mass is really complex, but we have to start at that real foundation basic level of like balancing blood sugar and, you know, eating the right amounts of fats and carbs and proteins for your body. So I guess there's another one too. I think that men think that they can live without carbohydrate and do those kind of more keto you know there's a lot of there's so much I feel like everything I'm reading now because I work so with so many women now as I used to work with so many men it's like oh but men can do that it's just women can't do that mm-hmm. yeah yeah <laughs> yeah just like the fasting we were talking about yeah I think there's a very clear parallel with all anything that's driving stress like that the low carb the fasting and it it'll cause the same problems you know in the long term uh, well, for men and it's women. yeah it's just like men can deal with more stress apparently but i think it comes back to what you were talking about you know it's like if i have an ir- irregular mer- menstrual cycle it's really it's really obvious to me because it would give me sick days and discomfort and you know women think more like oh I'm you know if I'm single I'm like I've lost my period but I want to meet something so I really should get on top of that and you know it's there's a time factor to it as well we don't really want to miss periods um whereas for men there's there isn't that it's pushed through kind of so what what are the sexual functions that you would see on a day-to-day basis do you think yeah. Also, just just to give women some credit, of course, there's a lot that are also pushing through the same things. And oh, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah, and especially with with birth control now too, it's like we are blunting. We're, um, we're yeah, we're ignoring or or creating a system where we can't even evaluate those symptoms that we're supposed to be able to see on a regular basis. We being women, not me, of course. <laughs> yeah, hundred <laughs> uh, percent. Yeah, but as far as so. 
as far as I guess sexual function on a day to day basis for men, there's I mean the main things that uh, you know I would say we're looking at purely on the reproductive side, of course, would be things like sex drive and libido, which I think there's that notion that in your twenties, you know, you're supposed to have you know real strong sex drive, and then it's supposed to just keep going down and down and down, um, and that's normal. And I think along with that too, is the idea of, of like performance in the bedroom, right? Like um, erectile dysfunction and, and issues along those lines becoming extraordinarily common with age is just a normal part of aging. And um, <clears throat> yeah, you have this, uh, this new idea of andropause, which is supposed to kind of parallel menopause. And again, is the kind of idea with that, is it being normalized for androgenic function to decrease over time. And, and along with that also comes decrease decreases in muscle mass, decreases in bone density, the same kinds of, of factors. And, and so I think in short there, that's a fallacy. Like, I, I think it's something we see now, like it's extraordinarily common now, but I don't think that makes it normal or healthy, I should say, uh, or optimal metabolically. And yeah, so I think the idea of having the sex drive and the ability to eat as much as you wanted, you know, and, and all of those things that came in someone's twenties should be the norm more or less uh, for the extended future, you know, um, even through those andropause years. And uh, yeah, so I think seeing declines, there are signs of decreased function, reduced metabolic health, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to just being normal. So what are the main male hormones that we're talking about? So, of course, the focus tends to be on testosterone, and and I think that's the simplest one to focus on. There are further metabolites that that have stronger activity, like uh, DHT, which is dehydrotestosterone, and there are precursors to those as well, like DHEA, and, and all of these are the steroid hormones that are coming from cholesterol, much like for women's health, you have progesterone as that kind of main uh, female hormone. Again, steroid hormone coming from cholesterol and so many factors that kind of affect what's going to go on in that chain and whether you're instead going to start to fall into the estrogenic side, kind of the other side, which happens to be pretty parallel between women and men. Of course, women have particular needs for estrogen in very small time periods, very you know particular moments, but in general, excess uh, conversion of the steroids toward uh, estrogens is a sign of hormonal imbalance in both men and women. So you see that in, in men too, kind of this androgen versus estrogen balance, so to speak. Um, and that, you know, when you're looking for those kind of estrogenic um, markers, you're seeing the the various, you know, estradiol, esterone, esterone sulfate, like there's, there's a handful of different metabolites. And then you also have prolactin being, especially if you're looking at blood blood tests, uh, prolactin tends to be the best indicator of estrogen uh, status as far as the blood goes. Um, so yeah, that, that, did that answer your question? Yeah. So they're their main hormones. So let's talk about what, how we would notice that we would be lacking in one of these hormones. So like, what are the physical body signs? Cause I'm trying to teach men body literacy here. As what are the physical signs that, you know, so I, when I think of estrogen, I think of, and hormones being out of balance for men, especially men worrying about having um, fat tissue around the chest area and having mm-hmm. man boobs. Do you want to talk mm-hmm. 
a little expand a little bit more on those kind of things. Yeah. So that kind of seeing that shift in body composition towards central adiposity. So waking around that central, like lower belly area. And then also, as you said, in the chest, basically gynecomastia and, and excess fat tissue in the chest. Uh, that's, those are both telltale signs of excess stress hormones, which as we're saying comes with excess estrogen and tends to also come with a lack of the androgenic hormones. So I'd say from the body composition side, you have that, and then either a lack of muscle mass or trouble putting on muscle being the telltale signs when we're looking at yeah, body composition. Mm. Uh, and you, and, and you could say, you know, you can look at every kind of body system and see a parallel effect, like uh, strong focus like from the brain side, like strong focus, a good relaxed uh, demeanor, uh, you know, not getting angry at, at the drop of a pin sort of thing. Like, uh, you know, that sort of ability to be relaxed and patient, but also have some assertion. I think that those are kind of characterizations I would make of more androgenic tone, essentially. Uh, whereas when you see more estrogen, there's some uh, interesting research looking at personality and and hormones, but estrogen, you tend to have uh, a lot less of those, you know, like first trouble focusing and trouble concentration and that side of things, but also less patience, more prone to anger and things like that, which unfortunately, those are some of the things that people use to characterize androgenic men. Um, but, you know, I don't think that being angry is a good sign of that at all. Yeah, right. We, I wouldn't come and talk about more in depth about the emotions with you because they're super important. But um, it's fascinating, isn't it? Like, yeah, you would you you think of angry guys as like this beefy guy who's massively muscly and taking maybe steroids and you know he's just like a Hulk, and you probably want that kind of body, but you associate those uh, mood swings with that kind of person. Yeah, but no. Yeah. And it's interesting too. I think with the estrogen thing, as a lot of men will say to me, "Oh, you know, I've got this gut, and I've got these." what looks like small breasts and I'm really uncomfortable with that. So I must need to lose weight to overcome mm -hmm. those areas or those things. Right. So we'll come back to that. Let's um, yeah. Estrogen. Um, what about the signs of low androgens? Yeah, they tend to really parallel. I, you know, you could separate it, but generally what's actually happening is what's called aromatization where the, like the estrogen tends to be the estrogenic um, side of the hormones tends to be the latter end. And so normally what happens is you're starting with something like an androgen and then it is being converted to estrogen. So when you're seeing mm -hmm. elevated estrogens, it tends to go hand in hand with the low androgen. So a lot of the symptoms are parallel. You could kind of separate them if you wanted, right? Like you could talk about the excess adiposity, like the excess weight gain. And as you said, kind of the man boobs, maybe those being more on the estrogenic side, and trouble putting on muscle being more of a lack of androgens, but they really tend to go pretty tightly hand in hand. I will also say the low energy, the fatigue, the needing to run on coffee. Again, the androgenic hormones for men are the main drivers of metabolism outside of thyroid, but they, again, they go together. And so general low energy is going to be another sign of those low androgens. Low libido, low sex drive is going to be another major sign there as well. Of course, having a normal amount of estrogen is a, is a factor there, but uh, generally it's not like generally excess estrogen and low androgens is still going to be a mm. pretty common characterization there. 
And I've seen this too a lot in people who do a lot of high-intensity um, athletic work, like hit classes and CrossFit. Sometimes they're not putting on muscle, but, yes, not understanding obviously that a lot can be to do with exercising too much and not eating enough to meet those exercise requirements, but also the types of food that you're eating that cause estrogen. And we'll come back and talk about that as well. Cause I think that that's a huge myth that if you are not happy with your body composition, you should just eat more and train less. Mm. And what we're delving into here is how that affects all these hormones, right? The production of hormones. So where, so when we talk about metabolism, how does our metabolism, because metabolism being the energy that we get from food, how mm. does that affect the production of all of these hormones? Yeah. Uh, so it affects it all the way from the ground up. It's a, it's a great question. I think it's a good, a good way to add context. I did want to add real quick, when it comes to the androgens and estrogen, another sign can be issues with gut health. So for example, with SIBO, which is a very common, like small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, a very common gut issue. They've found that relapse in SIBO and trouble, like ineffective treatment of SIBO is associated with low androgens and high estrogens, for example. So again, you see that everywhere. You see it also in autoimmunity, again, excess estrogen there being a driver. So it's something that really plays into all these areas, but the, the gut one is not one that, that you hear talked about too much, but mm-hmm. it's all so going? directly interrelated. Yeah. So yeah, when it comes to energy availability, we're talking about the production of ATP, as you said, from the food we're taking in. And that really like determines, drives our health from the ground up. So when, you know, even if we, like we can do this with every single body system, right? We did it last time talking about the liver. And here, when you look at just, let's say, testosterone production in the testicles, it re- requires adequate ATP production. And when you disrupt that, when you uh, do anything, and we'll talk about some examples of like even foods that we can eat that'll do this, when you disrupt the ability to produce energy, you stop producing steroids there. You stop, and that's our main site of testosterone production. So that, like, that is on, on the most minute level, we see that. But you also see it on the global level where when our body as a whole doesn't have enough energy, it turns down those thyroid hormones, turns up the stress hormones. And those stress hormones also prevent the production of reproductive hormones. It prevents the production of testosterone, for example. They, um, they act as signals that go throughout the body and, and basically turn off the excess functions that we're trying to conserve when we don't have a lot of energy and, and reproduction is one of them. So... Yeah. It, when we're looking at things on a global level and we're just focusing, as you said, on something like eating less and exercising more, all we're doing is decreasing the energy our bodies have, which in the short term can have various effects, but long-term is always going to result in lower thyroid activity, increased stress hormones, lower reproductive hormones, including testosterone and uh, a plethora of other issues. And there was a purpose to that you know, function. Like our body's quite smart, yeah. right? Like the whole purpose to that function is as a hunter gatherer, if you were all of a sudden being chased by a lion, you do you want to explain how the hormones work in that kind of situation and why it's an emergency system? Yeah, and and maybe even talking about something a little longer term, like a famine, right? Like there, you go through a period of low food, which people try to force on themselves now, but you know, back in the days, you were saying hunter gatherers and whatnot, but just all all organisms can go through periods of 
of a lack of good quality food. And when they do that, if, and we'll just talk humans, like if we do that and keep our metabolism at the same rate, we're going to wither away and die very quickly. So instead of doing that, if there's not, let's say enough food available, which is just a, you know, proxy for energy, if there's not enough energy available, we turn our metabolism down so we can survive. And the other thing we do is we start to direct energy away from a high functioning brain, away from well functioning digestion, away from a reproductive system and reproduction. Cause those are all things that those can, we can worry about in the future right now we need to need to survive. And so we stop putting energy towards those things. And we try to conserve as much food as possible and store it as body fat. And this is not like the, this, you know, we're painting this nice picture of, you know, this evolutionary picture, here's what would have happened back in, you know, back in the day. But that, that picture is something that's being superimposed on the physiology. We, this is very clear, like decreases in body temperature will happen when you go along, you know, go a while without eating decreases in metabolic rate happens when you go a while without eating. Uh, and, and that is, and you don't have to fully starve yourself to see those effects. Fasting will do it. Low carb diets will do it. Uh, excess polyunsaturated fats will do it. So these all make sense in a biological context. As you said, it's not like our bodies are, are doing this just because it, it happens to be that way for some random reason. It was, it's an intelligent adaptive response to a lack of energy. It's, it's a way to try to conserve and survive until hopefully there's more energy available. And we've just gotten a little confused in our modern day because so much of what we're doing, even if we're eating enough food, so to speak, blocks are, you know, inhibits effective energy production because it's nutrient poor. It has a lot of polyunsaturated fats or various other issues. And we end up being put in the state, even though we're not actually experiencing a famine. And I do want to say this doesn't only apply to famine. It would also apply to poor quality food, right? Like if back in, back in the evolutionary, you know, back in the hunter gatherer days, there was only, I don't know, walnuts and um, I don't know, like leaves available. And that was what we were surviving on that would still want, you know, that because those are such poorer foods compared to other things that are available, it would have the same effect. 100%. And it's, I think it's also important to realize when, because people, you know, people often say, but hunter gatherers had famine periods and they fasted and that's why they're so healthy. <laughs> and um, the context with that is they would have those very random occasions in their life, not Whereas we're seeing clients who are in this chronic stress as if they're in a famine or they're being chased by a lion 24-7, <laughs> like just constantly. And the things, the challenges that we have in our society, like if you were a hunter-gatherer back then, you would have been with your men, you know, your tribe, and you would have been working on something together. Whereas now in this society, we tend to go home and sit on Facebook and call that, you know, connection. Um, <laughs> and so. And you would have been in in the sun with your tribe, whereas we're sitting there under the blue light pretending to have a relationship with people online. <laughs> like, <laughs> so the context of what's happening in that environment is creating what's happening in the physiology, right? And um, and I think that as well, this idea that men could run for miles without food and be chased by a lion without food. You want to talk about what happens in that that context when you have to all of a sudden do physical activity without fuel. Yeah. Well, and I do want to say, even if those things were happening for short periods of time in the past and we have all these ways to deal with them, it doesn't mean that those were supportive of our health. 
you know, those could have been mm. the things that were holding us back uh, from wherever we could have get, uh, been, whatever potential we could, we, we do have. So. Well, you see that I with think, evolution, right? Like our brains have grown bigger, the more food that was available to us, the more glucose that was available to us. When fire became available to us, so our brains get bigger <laughs> with the more resources that we have. Yeah, up until grains, right? Up until yeah. agricultural revolution, and <laughs> and uh, you know, of course, that being a detail where it's not just about the calories, of course, which is what we're kind of saying. It, it, the quality of the food and what is involved in that quality really makes a difference too. Uh, but yeah, so again, it kind of goes along the same lines. It's just because we can do it doesn't mean it's beneficial for us, and just because it was something that we had to do doesn't mean it's beneficial. And and that gets into a larger much larger question and discussion about evolution and adaptation where some people will say that we adapted toward that, which makes, which means that that's what we should be doing. But as we're kind of getting at adaptation doesn't mean positive or negative. It just means a change to respond to it, to a stimulus. And so that change, as we're saying, could have resulted in decreasing brain size because we couldn't feel it that well uh, (laughs) among other things. So yeah, just because we adapted in a certain direction doesn't mean that that is supportive of greater complexity and, and health uh, or lifespan or whatever parameter you want to use. So when we pair the biological lens with what's actually going on physio- physiologically, I think we tend to see that clearer picture of the cost of that sort of stress. Again, this idea that we can do those things and we can push through those things is great. And that's what's allowed us to survive but it doesn't mean that doing less of that wouldn't have been better. And we have the ability to manipulate our environment considerably now. And I think that that offers us a lot of opportunity. And this is again, kind of a, a much larger, like another piece of the discussion here is this idea of hormesis where the small amount of stress from that run without food, that fasted cardio is going to cause a defensive response that makes us stronger and again, I think it comes back to that idea that it might make us stronger, but at what cost, right? At the cost of our reproductive function, at the cost of our brain function, uh, there is always a cost involved when we're talking about an adaptation to a decrease in energy availability. And when we talk about an adaptation to an increase in energy availability, we see the opposite. We see that that results in increased complexity. So I know that that it like sounds very theoretical and... Uh, I'm happy to kind of, I don't know if we want to dig into some other like practical situations, but the short of it is that fasting cardio is, is as bad as fasting is plus the extra stress from the cardio. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and we know that all of our stress systems get activated just from exercise alone when it's like long distance cardio and adding a lack of fuel to begin with is just going to amplify that stress. Mm. Oh yeah. I mean, I think it comes back to that basic thing that I try and explain for everybody is that you need a certain amount of energy to run your body. And if there isn't enough, the body will choose, well, I'm not going to give energy to X, Y, and Z because I need to do A, B, and C, or I will die. So mm-hmm. um, so this idea that we always burn fat when we don't have any energy in the tank is null and void because it's, we, we, we do you want to explain that? Like it's, there's a, there's a certain place that you will do that, but it's not very long lasting. 
Uh, are you talking about if, if someone's fasting or, or yeah, exercising being, and trying to burn ex- fat? Yeah. Well, just even that, you know, you should train more than you eat, you know, and, mm. you know, the output should be more than your input. I mean, we have this assumption that, okay, there's not enough fuel there. So what I will do is I'll burn fat and I will lose fat. You know? Right. And the burning fat part isn't necessarily wrong, but the losing fat part is not a given, right? And so very, you know, some people were very surprised to see some research where they put people on a low-carb diet and they saw much higher levels of fat burning, but they would lose less weight, lose less body fat. And that's because there's the whole other part of that equation is not just how much fat is getting burned, but how much fat is being deposited in the fat stores. And mm-hmm. when you're running in that fat system, you have much higher amounts of stress hormones and you're going to be encouraging the storage of much more fat. And that's kind of what you're getting at is that when you have a deficit and I would say an energy deficit in the short term, sure, you might be losing some body fat, but over time, you're going to increase the signaling. You're going to amplify the signaling of fat storage. And that's why that the yo-yo dieting experience is so ubiquitous. And I see it with women. I see it with men where people will talk about how they did their last cut. They did their last diet. They exercised really hard. They lost all their weight. It was great. And then over time, it started to come back because you know they couldn't keep up in that energy deficit. It was taking too much of a toll. Well, then the next time they do it, they have to work harder to get the same result, or they try to work just as hard and they don't lose as much body fat and it comes back faster. And that tends to happen more and more over time until someone's weight has ballooned up and they're not feeling good. And they're the same diet they were doing before and the same exercise they were doing before isn't cutting it. And now they're stuck. And so I see, unfortunately, a lot of people in that state, and luckily a lot of people before that state too, but that is the product of the eat less, exercise more dieting mentality. It's a short-term gain that doesn't last too long. And it also comes with diminishing returns. Mm, yeah. I did a little video on my Instagram and some weight loss stuff. And I was talking about specifically two male clients of mine. And I was really surprised when they came to me that they both uh, they were training partners and they came both with their DEXA scans and all kinds of things. And they both were on about a 1,700, 2,000 calorie diet. And that mm. was the only way they could maintain the body weight that they wanted to maintain. Yet the amount of training volume that they were doing, I would have put them on 3,000 plus calories. Yeah, yeah. I can't, yeah. I can't tell you how many times someone will be doing, you know, and these are the people who are working out really hard. Like you're saying, you know, they're working out and burning 1,000 to 2,000 calories just from their extra movement on top of their basal metabolic rate. And they're barely eating 2,000 calories. They're like, I, I have to do this. Otherwise, I will just keep gaining weight. And uh, that is that is the, that is like the picture of low metabolism and getting mm. stuck in that, in that dieting cycle. And unfortunately, those people too, I find they're never happy with the way that they look because they do not get beautiful muscle tone when you have that metabolic dysfunction. And that's what people look at the mirror and go, oh, I'm still not happy. I need to lose more weight. Not because they that's... need to lose more weight. They're not happy with the tone of the muscle <laughs> and mm. the way their body holds water and fat and, you know, and all that is to do with eating enough food, you know, and we can come back to that because I think body composition is, you know, something that men do strive for. They go to the gym and they want to put oh, yeah. muscle on. So we should definitely talk about that. But this, so then coming back to the hormones though, so we're trying to do all these things to lose weight, but then what's happening to our testosterone? What's happening to our thyroid hormone? Yeah. So that is the, that is when we talk about this, like the, the dieting cycle, 
where you lose the weight, then you gain it back plus a little more, and then you work really hard to lose it. You don't lose quite as much, and then you gain it back and more. And you see that kind of eventually, like essentially linear, kind of up and down, but trending upward as far as body weight and body fat goes. The reason why whatever you did before is not working as well now is because of the the hormonal response or the hormonal response is, is driving or this situation of, as you said, lower thyroid and lower, in this case, androgens and higher estrogens that is making it so that you're literally burning, if you want to think of it that way, less food, you know, over time, your metabolism is quite literally going down. And so that's why it's getting harder and harder to lose the weight. And that's why the weight comes back on easier and easier. And yeah, the, these hormones tend to be mediating those, uh, tend to be mediating that, uh, that process. Mm. So then you're, um, yeah, it's not understanding how much energy you need to make your hormones. Yeah. The, yeah, of course the opposite of, of this is, uh, like, it's not as simple as just how much you're eating. Right. But yeah, but, but yeah, the, at the base level, the amount of energy available will determine the hormonal state. Like that is the hormones are responding to the energy state. When our energy availability is low, that's why we activate the stress hormones. Like we said before, if we're starving or if we're running, like if we're running, we have to activate our stress systems to mobilize that fuel and bring more energy available, like up to the surface essentially, because otherwise we'll run out of energy. And we can't keep running anymore. So these are all like really helpful adaptive mechanisms, but um, they're driven by energy. And then the hormones reflect that. And anything that drives us toward a lack of energy is going to drive us toward low androgens, low thyroid, high stress hormones. And then anything that does the opposite, that increases the energy available, then has the opposite effect on the hormones. And that's the the flip side that, um, you know, when I'm working with people and trying to shift everything toward. And I think, um, so coming back to the sexual health part, like I think men think it's as simple as wanting to have sex and not wanting to have sex. Whereas I think mm-hmm. there's varying degrees of um, like, being able to ejaculate, being premature ejaculation, all these kinds of things, mm-hmm. right? Do you want to sort of elaborate on a few of those things that are signs that men can look for? Yeah. So there's, I think all of those things are important signs, right? Uh, and they, there can be some specifics and some uniqueness to each one. So for example, uh, premature ejaculation tends to have a correlation or relationship with excess serotonin which is often caused by some uh, gut dysfunctions, gut issues. And so that's, again, that's one that can be pretty common. As you said, also not being able to ejaculate. Uh, there's another another symptom that I've seen a handful of times, which is uh, post-orgasm illness syndrome, or which is called POIS, or just basically a situation where somebody has symptoms after ejaculating. And sometimes the last a couple of days, whether uh, like fatigue and low mood, and those are also signs typically that that's one that tends to really be correlated with excess estrogen, estrogen, and um, a lack of, of those uh, androgenic hormones. And again, of course, every, like almost anything, any symptom of, of poor metabolic health will be associated with those things because those are associated with poor metabolic mm-hmm. health. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the two sides of the same coin. So but, a question then, yeah, do yeah. you think just on that post ejaculation issue because there is a lot of um uh, some men will say well I can't have sex when I when I train if I've had sex the night before I don't train as well mm-hmm. 
do you think that is a natural function or do you think that it could be linked to this post-ejaculation? Because it does tie back into athletes as well and trying not to get athletes to have sex before a competition or, you know, that kind of thing. Do you, have you looked into that much or have any experience knowing about that kind of stuff? My inclination would be that there's a spectrum, right? And so at a certain level, a certain level maybe is normal and a certain level is a sign of dysfunction. And so I I don't know whether I think any decrease in athletic performance following like sex and ejaculation the night before would be a sign of that dysfunction mm. or not. I would guess like, again, this is something at least that as far as I know, research tends not to be looking at, right? It's not like this is like they're studying these sorts of effects of of how frequently someone ejaculates or uh, the time after that, how long, you know, and then testing performance. Um, maybe there are, there is some research on it that I haven't seen, but this tends unfortunately to be one of those areas that is not really looked at in, in the way that it could be. Uh, but I, I would probably lean toward the idea that if someone's noticing, like if is having any noticeable performance decrement the next day, that's probably a sign of, mm-hmm. of an imbalance of, of suboptimal like metabolic health. Mm. And I think I see it more in endurance athletes. Mm. Yeah. And, and of course you've got a chicken or the egg situation. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> but. <laughs> but this is kind of interesting because I think as well in that corporate culture, there tends to be this push towards like cycling and running and all these endurance kind of sports. And, yeah. you know, they can mask a lot of these symptoms or not think about it. And especially if you're actually too busy to be to have time to have sex with your partner or you're single and you're too busy to you know find someone yeah. to have intimacy with that you're not maybe you can push through these things a lot more right so you actually have to kind of have to be having sex or have someone that you want to have sex with to have these whereas women it's like well whether i have sex or not <laughs> i know whether there's something wrong with me yeah and that's like there is a huge social and psychological and cultural component when it comes to these sorts of sexual symptoms too. Maybe not as much the post-orgasm like fatigue and and whatnot, Mm -hmm. but when it comes to premature ejaculation or difficulty with, uh, with ejaculating or uh, uh, like uh, any sort of other performance related symptom, uh, I think, you know, again, erectile dysfunction as well. There's like, there's uh, like porn, I think has to be part of that discussion, mm, 100%. intense stress, lack of sleep. Again, all these things affect hormones as well. Uh, but, you know, as, as you said, like a partner that you actually have a connection with yeah. uh, there, I mean, there is, there are so many uh, factors there that, I mean, I think, I think, societally both men and women were unfortunately just very sick and yeah. that good that is all yeah. aspects of our health right like not yeah. just the food that we're given but all these other areas and so yeah we certainly can't ignore those things and it's just it's such a it's a long conversation to have it's but i will really say and that, yeah but what i will say and i like that you were kind of bringing this up is it, it reminded me also I, I would really say that i think sex and ejaculation from the male side should be more of a constructive um activity <laughs> constructive thing to do that is that is way more supportive of health physically and emotionally than it is a cost right 
Like they're, mm-hmm. I think with a lot of the, the no fab, right. The idea that we just want to be not for one, not masturbating, which that's, you know, and not using porn. Those are kind of different conversations, but as far as like not having sex or not ejaculating goes, I think that as we're kind of getting at, if that's causing, uh, if that's causing you to feel worse, I think that can be a sign at, as you said, or like, as we're kind of saying of less than optimal reproductive health, mm. as opposed, you know, and I think in reality, it should be supportive of, of our health as a whole. We should feel better. I mean, it's one thing maybe to feel, yeah, I, I think we should be feeling better after those, uh, those things as opposed to worse. And I think it's something to really pay attention to as well, because if, you know, things like serotonin and looking at Parkinson's and, you know, all those kind of hormones, like we, we have signs of these degenerative, you know, neurodegenerative, um, physically degenerative diseases that if we were just more willing to talk about our body and how it doesn't lie to us, that we would be able to address them much sooner in life. So you were talking about um, ejaculation and serotonin being a problem. Well, I know, yeah, like I was saying before, serotonin and Parkinson's and Alzheimer's, is there's a huge link there um and tomo talks a lot about that on his website he's really into neurodegenerative diseases and metabolic function there's a lot we can do you know there's an increase in parkinson's there's an increase in alzheimer's but too much serotonin is not necessarily a good thing right yeah Um, yeah absolutely (laughs) Whereas there's always thought of being like, you know, you should have more serotonin and, um, you know, that's a whole other podcast altogether. But yeah, <laughs> I yeah. think serotonin is um, not the happy hormone. Yeah. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's a huge thing. It's a huge cultural issue, like especially with porn and this idea of instant gratification and, um, mm-hmm. you know, and lack of intimacy. And we're not, it's so much easier to mask all these signs. It's often that you're too not until you're in a relationship that you start looking at these kind of issues. Um, and I'm in a, I mean an intimate relationship, not a, you know, fuck buddy kind of relationship. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so, so then let's come back to talking about the gut because this is a really interesting one because, you know, again, I was just thinking about serotonin and the gut and all these kind of issues is that mm-hmm. people sort of, think well i have SIBO or i have issues i I need to cut out sugar i need to cut out grains i need to do a liver detox and um everybody go back and listen to the episode jay and i just did on liver health but not understanding that this is a product of low energy can you please explain these gut issues and and why we we're seeing them more increasingly more in men um Mm. yeah go ahead yeah. So I think it becomes the most clear, like, again, we can look at it in a lot of the, like looking at, you know, the cellular level of the, uh, you know, the physiology of what's going on on the cells that line the intestines and when they don't have enough ATP, how that increases permeability. And, you know, when you actually provide glucose, it helps to restore, you know, uh, the integrity of the intestinal lining and, we can look at it on that level, but I think when you zoom out a little bit and look at the association between hypothyroidism, which is the low energy, you know, the result of a low energy state and gut health, it becomes really clear. So 
hypothyroidism is very tightly tied with SIBO as we were talking about earlier. And the reason for that is because when our thyroid activity is low, we're not getting as much blood flow to our digestive system, doesn't have as much energy available to function properly. It slows our gut motility, meaning that the food moves much slower through our intestines that allows for bacteria to consume more and more of that food and to also get higher and higher up in the intestines. And so that's part of the reason why you see more bacterial overgrowth and especially more bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine with a lack of energy. Another factor there is that we see much lower bile production or bile concentration from low energy, low metabolism, liver issues. And our bile acts as our primary antimicrobial antibiotic in our small intestine. And so when we don't have enough bile being released or produced, that also allows for increases in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Another factor would be stomach acid, where hypothyroidism, again, associated with low stomach acid, so we're not digesting our food as well, that also leading to more of the feeding of bacteria and less of the feeding of us, right? Less of, less of the food mm-hmm. that we're absorbing. So you have, in all aspects of digestion and gut health, you have areas where, of course, energy is at play. And the more energy we have, the more optimally those things function. And when we're in a low energy, hypothyroid, hypometabolic state, we see those things become dysfunctional. And as I was saying earlier, you see that same association with the low androgens, high estrogens causing the same problem. And so Sorry. you were asking, does that mean we have to avoid foods, right? Does that mean yeah. we have to avoid sugar? <laughs> And of course, the short answer is no, that doesn't mean we need to just avoid sugars, avoid carbohydrates. Um, you know, in general, I've seen a lot of people who have gut issues, something I, a lot of my clients uh, are coming to me with, with issues there. And a lot of them feel a lot better when they remove, you know, when they go on a keto diet uh, or when they fast. And it's uh, what I would say is that those are situations where you're just avoiding the problem. And, you know, there is some value to avoiding the problem in the short term, but I think there's much better ways to do it. So I think the the best approach there is to lean into the foods that you feel best with gut-wise. Uh, and for a lot of people, it does mean decreasing or removing those harder to digest foods, right? The raw vegetables, the grains, the nuts and seeds, and those are much more likely to cause short-term symptoms gut-wise and long-term as well. So I think most people, as long as they're getting their carb sources from fruits, roots, and uh, you know, honey, maple syrup, maybe some sugar. Normally, those are foods that they can eat without causing any issues gut-wise, even if they're dealing with a microbial imbalance or you know some trouble with digestion. Uh, you know, un- unless it's really a pretty extreme case, I think most people are totally fine still including all of those things. But even if someone, like even in that case, of course, we want to be able to. Uh, you know, let's say someone isn't doing well with starches like tubers and roots and white rice. Of course, we want to be able to get to a place where someone can tolerate those things. And so I think you have this balance between eating the foods that actually allow you to feel good because that's part of the, that will allow for healing, but then also doing some things to support, of course, you metabolically. And then maybe also specifically with digestion and rebalancing the microbes, the bacteria and, and fungi and whatnot to help to correct the issue. But as I was saying, this the general idea of just avoiding anything that could feed them, plus just trying to kill them off, like that doesn't that tends not to work. I mean, we see a huge relapse rate with SIBO over sixty percent. So, and I've seen people who have done rounds and rounds of both herbal and pharmaceutical antibiotics, and are still you know the issues keep recurring as mm-hmm. soon as they get off of them. And so, 
I think in that case, it's just a situation where people are ignoring the bigger picture, the the thyroid side, the hormone side, the energy side, which needs to be corrected in order to really fix the problem. I think too that often this big piece that's missing is just this blood sugar regulation. So this eating regular meals throughout the day that match the energy output that you're putting in and the right balance of protein, fats, and carbohydrates is a huge one that I find that's completely overlooked in gut health. And it can be, you know, especially people who are not overweight. I think Mm -hmm. doctors just look at them and go, oh, well, you're not overweight, so you mustn't be eating any rubbish. (laughs) So (laughs) let's just cut out FODMAPs or let's just, you know, to try and solve this problem. Um, And especially if you're training, right, you know, I think a lot of, I've had a lot of clients who have overcome a lot of gut issues just from doing that, you know, macro balancing and calorie um prescription right and the right foods obviously and it's a huge missing piece of how much stress um causes these gut bugs. do you want to explain how that happens in the gut that this inconsistent eating or um fasting like how does that work would you like to explain that for everyone yeah. Well, one one factor there that you were kind of alluding to is that eating consistently, one of the ways that it helps is it allows us to have more moderate sized meals. Whereas when you're trying to pack all of your food into one or two meals a day or a short eating window, we're giving ourselves a lot less time to digest that food. And so that's a lot more likely to contribute to issues. Uh, but yeah, another factor is this idea of just starving out the bacteria. Uh, it tends not to work so well for a couple of reasons. One, if you're actually fasting and whatnot, it again, it tends to help short-term just by not directly feeding things, but the cost metabolically tends to, uh, tends to still kind of catch up later on. And the other thing too, is it's not supporting the aspects of digestion uh, and metabolism that allow for a healthy gut. So I do think a part of that is supporting the right microbes with, let's say fibers from fruit and and those polyphenols and things. So you're missing out on that. But another huge factor from low carb diets or keto diet, where you're again, just trying not to feed the bacteria is the problems that come along with excess protein uh, being consumed without any sort of plant material at all, or without any carbohydrates, which is that it, and this is something that, you know, you hear a lot in the vegan community about the protein fermenting or putrefying. And it is something that actually happens when you're eating a very, very high protein diet and tends to cause a ton of gut issues. It tends to drive the production of sulfur producing bacteria or hydrogen sulfide producing bacteria and increase endotoxin production, increase uh, intestinal permeability, all the issues that we're trying to avoid. It creates them just kind of in a, in a, you know, a different environment. Mm. Um, but again, the eating consistently to having good quality fruits, let's say on a regular basis, the, there's so many benefits to those things gut wise, right? You have the fibers that are in them that selectively feed certain microbes. You have the polyphenols in them that selectively, uh, either kill off or, or impair the growth of certain bacteria. And so those things really help to shape, uh, the bacterial balance in a way that supports us health wise. So I think that's super important, this gut thing, and hope that pe- hopefully people have heard that message that and that we've had on the show many times is that, you know, starving out bacteria is not going to work. Same goes for parasites and all those kind of things. 
Mm. Now, I know what a lot of men are going to be listening and going, okay, Jay, but how do I build muscle? Um, you know, because that, yeah. you know, men definitely strive for that when they um, train. Um, women are a little bit afraid of putting on muscle and I keep telling them it's so hard to put on muscle. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. for men putting on muscle, let's go through some of the key aspects of health that we need to be able to put on muscle and why some men would not be putting on muscle. So I guess like a big one is protein and having to have an excess of protein and things like protein shakes and whey proteins and all this kind of stuff. I think men typically believe that if they want to put on muscle, they have to go into all of this kind of stuff. Would you like to elaborate on that? Yeah, I think if you ask pretty much anybody which macronutrient is the main one responsible for helping you build muscle, they'll say protein. And of course, protein or sorry, muscle is is made of protein. Like yes. But that doesn't mean that we just need to eat more and more protein in order to build muscle. Uh, and in fact, we really don't need all that much. The, our actual requirements uh, tend to be way lower than what most people, especially in the fitness field, as you said, who are eating the protein shakes and protein bars and making sure to have you know six to 10 ounces of meat with every meal. Uh, that tends to be far, far more than we need. And so the research that's actually looking at the amount of protein intake that we want to have uh, for optimal muscle building shows that the range of 0.6 to 0.8 grams per pound is uh, more than adequate. Like that is, that is like kind of the range to shoot for, for protein intake. And so for kilograms, it'd be like 1.4 to 1.8 grams per kilogram. And that's, again, these numbers are quite a bit lower than normally what's suggested in the fitness spheres where they're saying at least a gram or maybe even two grams per pound. Uh, so yeah, way, way lower amounts. And this, this research is looking in athletes in strength athletes and elite athletes. This is not, uh, this is not a situation where they're just, you know, they're like sedentary people of low protein needs. And again, that's because one of the common kind of responses is like, I'm different. I need a lot of protein. I work out really hard. Uh, but what they actually find is that the athletes that are working out more actually require less protein because our bodies become, uh, I guess more efficient at using it. And the problem with having too much protein is that a, everyone knows that it's very filling. And sometimes that's the reason why people will have it. But what that means is that we're getting less of the other macronutrients that we actually need to build the muscle. So, and the biggest one there is typically carbohydrates where having enough carbohydrates is vital for creating the hormonal state that we've been talking about, the high androgen, low estrogen, high thyroid, low stress hormone state. And when, when I'm working with people, one of the things I'll see very often when someone's eating a lot of protein is that they don't have as much of a desire for carbohydrates. And that's because they're converting all this extra protein that's not actually being used to build uh, muscle. It's just being converted. You know, it's like the protein that's not being used is just being converted to, to carbohydrate. But there's several problems with that. Uh, it's just much less efficient. It produces a lot of ammonia as a byproduct, requires much more stress hormones. Whereas if we can actually provide carbohydrate in place of that excess protein, it works a lot better for keeping our stress hormones down. And it's much more supportive of building muscle. And so this idea that we need to be pounding protein all day is really, is really just a, a fallacy and has very little to do with 
um, with producing muscle or growing more muscle mm-hmm. again, beyond a certain point, of course, I think most people are, are, especially who are trying are getting way more than enough protein. Mm-hmm. And I think then there's the other end of the spectrum too, where I'm seeing clients who are not eating enough protein. Um, and they would be typically, for instance, um, well, I think the standard American diet is extremely low in protein, high in fat, high in sugar, low in protein, um, but also plant proteins. So do you have any thoughts that you'd like to share on plant proteins versus animal proteins, especially in the things of like pea protein versus things like casein and whey and that kind of thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a good distinction to make. It's certainly important. Generally, plant proteins are way less bioavailable, meaning you take in the same amount and you absorb considerably less. And uh, part of that is because of the anti-nutrients that are in the protein that actually prevent its breakdown and absorption. Uh, you know, when you're talking nuts and seeds, for example, and grains, you find a lot of those anti-nutrients. So yeah, a lot of the plant proteins are far inferior to animal proteins, you know, dairy, eggs, meat, seafood uh, are far better absorbed. So yeah, when, when we're kind of giving these ranges, it's really looking at, at the animal protein, not as much the plant protein. If you wanted to, I mean, there's such a cost to getting a considerable amount of protein from plant proteins that, yeah, I just would recommend shifting away from it. If someone is really set on getting some plant protein in pea is actually one of the better ones. It tends to be pretty, you know, very low in anti-nutrients and much better absorbed compared to many others. But uh, in general, I see very little reason for that. And the other thing too is, you know, it's one thing if you're trying to get 200 plus grams of protein a day, you might be looking at protein powders and whatnot to to supplement because it's so hard to do. But when you're looking at this range that we're talking about of protein intake, it's really pretty easy to to hit if you're just eating foods and eating protein and you know with most of you know with your meals in a in a moderate amount, it's really pretty easy for most people. Again, I know you said there's some people who undereat, but Typically, the men who are trying to build muscle and are working out are not under eating protein that I've seen. At least I think it's much less common. Mm. And so for them, it's more of a matter of reducing the protein intake and cutting out the powders and, and whatnot, because it's it's really easy to get enough. Well, yeah. And just shifting that balance with the right proteins, right? Because I, I see it very much with the women that I work with. They're like trying to get their protein count out. So they just have another collagen, another scoop of collagen, and another scoop of casein, yeah, yeah. and, another, and they're, <laughs> they're not complete proteins. <laughs> So they're a supplement, they're supplementary protein and they, you know, the great thing about these proteins, like when you have red meat and you have collagen with red meat, there's a lot of benefits to doing that and you should do that. But again, the basic pro the base protein is an animal food, not a supplementary product, like a powder there that, you know, so it's just watching that balance, I think. So I have seen a lot of men who are getting a lot of protein from shakes and powders and things and not enough from whole food sources. It's really interesting actually because I'm in Libby Westcombe's um, training membership group on Facebook mm-hmm. and there's quite a few women in there who've actually made the change from in, incorporating more whole food proteins and less um, plant proteins and less protein powders and things like that still having like we still promote she still promotes in the group having collagen and casein and things like that 
sure. but just switching the balance and getting that more correct and the amount of muscle definition that these women are seeing just from making that small change is quite remarkable and I think that's yeah. really interesting in women who it's so much harder for us to build muscle than men like and I've certainly noticed that with my male clients as well. When you get that balance of protein right, the definition in the muscle is much more apparent. Like it's a cleaner, tighter kind of look um, and can, you know, and I think this is important to talk about because a lot of men are looking at themselves, like I said before earlier in the podcast, that thinking they need to lose weight, but it's actually that they need to change their body composition or a lot of men I see who aren't eating the right kinds of foods hold this kind of like water weight over the top of their muscles. So they look mm. fat, right? I'm saying fat in mm. inverted commas because they're not seeing that definition. <laughs> and so this is not a weight loss issue. Um, did you want to touch on that a little bit? Cause I'm sure you've seen that and you've probably experimented on that yourself, right? Like in your training background and different diets and how they affected your body composition and, yeah. Yeah. And considering the water balance side and the swelling is, is I think certainly important. I will say, I definitely agree where I've, I've seen like, there's a, a stark contrast, right. With women who are uh, just in general, trying to eat healthy, it tends to be much more of a struggle to get enough protein. I, I've definitely seen that a lot, but yeah, I, I think, so when I first was interested in health, it came from fitness and it came from wanting to build muscle and getting good results in the gym. And I found it really, really tough to build muscle. And it's not because I was taking too little protein. Most of what I ate was protein. It's because I was eating way too little as a whole, and that was way too little carbs and fat. Uh, of course, we haven't talked about this as much, but fat is very important for producing steroid hormones like testosterone and uh, carbohydrates as well. And so the yeah, I've I've gone through different periods and found it harder, easier to uh, put on muscle. But the other thing that you're talking as far as water weight is an interesting one. And I think a lot of people, when they cut out carbohydrates, they find that they lose a lot of weight right away. And a lot of that is water weight. And they like, you know, it looks, it looks better, right? You can see all this definition, but the fact that there's water weight there and retention of water, that's a sign of inflammation. Uh, mm. ten, and typically if someone is noticing that from cutting out carbs, that it reduces swelling and water retention, that's a sign of poor digestion uh, maybe a microbial issue, endotoxin from the gut and not a sign of the carbs being the problems themselves. But I had certainly seen that. And when I was on a diet that included things that I was not digesting as well, uh, especially in large amounts. And this was one thing that kind of a mistake or an experiment that I did when starting to introduce more carbs from my paleo days and low carb days is I was very nervous to increase fructose intake. So I just was increasing carbs from white rice and plantains in very large amounts. And I was gaining, I was gaining weight, but a lot of it was water weight and water retention and had that kind of bloated swelling look that you're kind of describing. And I still eat a ton of carbs now. And after that was still eating a ton of carbs, but those, the problem with those was I was not digesting well, and I had some gut issues at the time. And so shifting away from those and toward much easier to digest foods immediately caused a huge reduction there. And uh, yeah, I think that that's pretty parallel to what you're describing. And again, mm. I think the cause of that tends to be inflammation. Of course, there can be different causes for that, but I think one of the most common ones is that it's derived from the gut. Mm. I think 
yeah, it's such an interesting one because I had so many people say to me, like CrossFitters especially, I just, when I trained, especially women, when I trained I was too bulky and they showed me pictures and I'm like, you're not bulky. <laughs> you just have yeah. all this water weight and swelling on top of your muscle. And if we could get rid of that and we could define the muscle, you would be really happy with how you look. It's not a weight loss issue. Yeah. And excess exercise will do that. I mean, that when you yeah. say CrossFit like that, I mean, that's my first thought is swelling due to the excess exercise. And I think a lot of people will notice that when their weight goes up, when they're working out too much, uh, like too heavily or too intensely, it's like that swelling inflammation response. Uh, I've definitely noticed that myself. Uh, and it sounds a lot like what you're describing. 100%. And I see this is really common too because you see a lot of men who train and they'll like get tired at two in the afternoon. So they'll go and train to wake themselves up. Like people are, mm-hmm. I've, I've seen a lot of men who are using training like coffee, basically. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, so they're training twice a day and one day will be, you know, like quite intense, like, you know, be, and then they'll be doing a sport on top of that, like jujitsu, mm-hmm. which is really intense. <laughs> and then they're saying to me, but I'm, I'm putting weight on or I'm just, I need to drop calories because I'm not happy with this look. And that look is that water kind of look over the top of their muscle. It's so, it's so fascinating that we just have this constant idea that we need to eat less and train more to have what we want. Whereas it's actually a really fine balance of enough food, the right foods at the right time. Um, Yeah. It's, it's, it's a science. (laughs) It is. But it also should be really easy and simple, right? Like 100%. the getting there is tough because we have to unlearn so much, relearn so much. We have to like get our bodies to a better spot and recover, but it should be easy and simple to maintain a low body fat percentage, to put on muscle, to not feel hungry every day, despite those things, to be able to get good sleep, to mm-hmm. have good sexual function. Like this should be a, like, we shouldn't have to really try for those things. Like you know, when we're eating in the parameters that we talked about, we should be able to more or less have a lot of intuition there. You know, when we worked out, probably naturally going to be hungrier and naturally going to be going towards certain foods. And we should be like, we should be able to get to a point where it's as easy as just listening to that and not worrying about anything else. And it all comes with, and, uh, I used to, and, and it, and there's such benefit to that psychologically too. Like I used to be so obsessed with my body and how I looked and like checking in the mirror every single morning. And I'm sure so many people have had this experience, but I would check every day to see like, if I was doing like, if what I was doing was working and I'd be checking after I worked out to see if I could notice, you know, the effects of the, of the workout from the pumps and the increased blood flow and everything. And, and it got to a point where I just like, I, when you develop a better relationship with food and you can't eat more intuitively and these things come easy, it just it just brings such a huge relief and totally uh, not invalidates, but just you don't need like, like that obsession goes away because it's mm. just not yeah just not needed and you you can actually relax into it. And it's, I don't know, just a world of difference, especially like like it was for me. And beyond that side of it, there's the other side of the constant restriction and always focused on food in such an uncomfortable way too. And yeah, it shouldn't have to be like that. It doesn't have to be like that. It really doesn't. Well, I think I guess what's a really good way to explain that is that understanding that body composition and maintaining muscle mass, building muscle mass, maintaining muscle mass is a metabolic process. It's not something that you force. Mm. Do you want to do you want to explain that? Because I think when people get this, like what it takes to build muscle and to maintain muscle and 
you know, how dieting actually negates that and overtraining actually negates that, you know, and especially in our current environment, you know, like with the current issue that we're seeing, one of the things that that has been published quite a bit now is that there are better outcomes with the current virus, the, the more muscle mass that you have, right? And, the, and so the better metabolic function. Can you explain the relationship between metabolic function and muscle mass? Because I think that would be really helpful. Yeah, I think there's, you know, it's one of those situations, of course, where too far in either end is is certainly a sign of of an issue or or it comes at a cost. Uh, I think there's, it's tricky, right? I, I think there's value to having muscle mass um, metabolically, but I think what's more valuable is generally the inputs that allow for that. So I think what we're seeing here is an association and not as much of a causation. Like when you're doing the things that are supportive metabolically, as you're kind of getting at the things that are required to build muscle in a healthy way, that's going to result in better health outcomes. I don't think it's necessarily the muscle itself, or at least that's kind of what I would lean toward. Uh, But the, yeah, but eating in a way that again, allows for the proper hormone balance uh, to support muscle growth having some stimulus there, some movement, some activity, some exercise, getting good sleep, working on doing things to decrease stress, getting enough food on a regular basis. I think doing those things are, again, the main things that help us health-wise and are the main things that help us for building muscle, right? It's like, I guess another way of thinking of it is is that the natural response to exercise, the natural adaptation that helps us to get better at it would be to build muscle. That's one of the responses. There's others too, but that would be one of them. And when we're doing things to support our health, we adapt better to that. We do a better job of, of uh, adapting in, in a constructive way. And so I think that that's uh, like, it's kind of a, a sign of health in that, in that regard. Well, and I think it takes less effort, right? Like, you know, if you are, you know, I think of like, two of my good friends, Kitty and Libby, right? Um, Both very different ideals, Libby Westcombe and Kitty Blumfeld, most very different styles of training that they enjoy. Um, But I would say that neither of them ever diet. Mm. Yeah. And not, you know, and both of them are able to go on a holiday and live it up a little bit and not come back and go, oh, my God, I lost all my muscle mass and, oh, my God, I put on all this body fat. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, they're just two people that I can think of who have this balance in their life where they're not constantly chasing muscle and worried about what they look, but they have this lifestyle where the the the, the work that they've put in just upholds itself, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like what you were talking about. You lose this obsession because it's like, well, I actually live in a way that just supports my body. And, yes, they both have significant training stimulus, okay, and that's going to be more than some women want to train. It's all relative, right, context. But what I guess I'm saying is that they, I look at them and I go, they're both so metabolic because they're able to maintain the muscle mass that they have without this total crazy, I'm going to give up all my social interactions, I'm going to give up my life, I'm going to give up the time that I have to eat, I'm going to spend half of my life in a, in my fitness pal counting my <laughs> calories and then if I go on a holiday I'm going to have to do a four-week cut to <laughs> get back to my physique you know it's it should be something that once you've done the work to regulate your metabolism and increase your metabolism and 
you have this beautiful life where you're organized with your food and you know what to eat, you know what works to you, that it it just is, you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I think another piece you're getting at too is that there's a lot more resilience, right? When you uh, when you're in that place, you can handle things being off, right? You're kind of saying like holidays, I'm sure eating at restaurants and you know some late nights sleep wise, like yeah. not needing to stick to the super strict regimen and still being pretty resilient to that and not have it, you know, not having that derail. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And I think a lot of it too, and it comes for men as well. Like you were saying, you would spend a lot of time looking in the mirror and checking out. We can become, I worked in as a fashion model for a while and that was really damaging to my perception of myself. And it was the same. It was constantly like, Oh my God, I can't eat this because I have a job tomorrow. And if I get bloated, I can't be on camera with a bloated mm-hmm. stomach. And I couldn't train too close to a job because then I would get, oh, well, you're too muscly because I'd have the muscle pump and, you know, like <laughs> the opposite yeah. end of the scale. Yeah. But we can, I think all of us have this ego tied into the way we look. And Which, for a lot of people, men and women, that can be really unrealistic. There are certain men, you know, there are certain body types of men that are not going to be as muscly as another type of man. And there are, there's varying degrees of beauty and and you know sexual attractiveness and all that kind of stuff and I think a lot of us have to let go of those ideals to actually find out what we are meant to aesthetically look like when we have a healthy metabolism you know for a lot of my female clients it's being five kilos heavier than they have always tried to be sometimes 10 kilos heavier um, and for a lot of my male clients it's sometimes yeah going well I don't I actually can't physically genetically build as much muscle as the person I keep looking at in the mirror and wanting to see you know it's it's accepting who you are basically I think is a big part of it and what you can achieve right and it's not made easy on us right I mean the the fitness models that we're comparing ourselves to are like we assume that a that's how they look all the time b that they're entirely healthy uh you know c that they are able like to do that fully naturally i think you know those things tend to be very very far from the truth you know when you see a lot of people those physiques when they're not in their uh you know their fitness model periods they tend to gain a lot of weight back or they're using a ton of steroid hormones as talking about the male models uh, or yeah, they're dealing with a ton of other health issues. And I, and I worked as a personal trainer at the gym for a while. And so I knew people who had physiques like that. And some of them were dealing with really intense, like significant health symptoms, like telling me like, I haven't gone to the bathroom, uh, in like the last four days, you know? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, it certainly is not a situation that's conducive to health and, and also seeing the kinds of things that they use for their cuts beyond just steroid hormones, but yeah, all sorts of sort of a fat loss, uh, you know, fat burners and things just, it is not a, it's a goal that we should not, like we shouldn't be striving to attain those things. And, and obviously that there's a huge problem media and culture wise with that. Um, that is, that makes it much harder to write, you know, exactly what you're saying, kind of accept where we're at, which doesn't mean that we can't try to also change where we're at. But, uh, you know, kind of relieving the guilt and pressure. And it, it made me think of another 
thing too. We were talking earlier about the uh, kind of yo-yo dieting, eat less, exercise more, and how it always ends up coming up and down, but it goes, it still ends up trending up. And I don't know of any, like every single person, and you kind of mentioned this, every single person who does that always looks back at their older pictures and wants to look like that. It's, mm. you know, it's, if only I can look like that again, and I'll just diet till I look like that, and then I'll be fine. And the tragic part is that that never happens. And all, like, you know, without fail, every time, you know, if, as long as you like, there might be a point where they diet, but then they gain the weight back. And every time they're looking back at those pictures and they keep wanting to be what they were a few years prior, even though that point was much heavier than the point a few years prior to that. Like, they mm. just want to be where they were before. And, you know, if you kind of take that a step further, it's like, you know, and if you're just okay with where you're at and try to accept where you're at and don't try to, um, you know, starve yourself in order to get to that lower weight, then the irony is that you'll, you actually won't keep gaining more and more weight over time and you won't have to keep looking back. And I think if you do, you know, over time work on things pro-metabolically and whatnot, I think you can actually get to a point where you do start to work your way back in a sustainable way. But even that aside, I think the acceptance side is, is the first thing and helps to prevent the, the again, the, the irony of the continued weight gain from the continued dieting. And I think as well, when I talk about clients looking back at those pictures and I go, okay, well, what else is going on in your life? Were you happy? Mm. You know, and so if clients will send me a photo of them on a bikini, in a bikini on a holiday, and they'll be like, oh, I was, you know, that's, I look the best ever. And I was like, okay, well, how was the holiday? It's like, oh, well, I spent the whole holiday worrying about putting back on the weight because I was eating so much food on the holiday. <laughs> and so right. then and my I... boyfriend was getting really annoyed with me because I was really annoying to go out <laughs> for, for, for lunch with, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah. And normally, even at that point, you're still looking back at previous pictures, wanting to, to look different from you do at the time. And 100%. now you would give anything to look like that, right? It's like, you know, break the cycle. You know, we have to break the cycle. We have to recognize yeah. that that if you keep, like you can always keep doing that. You can always keep looking back and wanting, you know, having that constant want for something that isn't in, you know, existing in the present, something that and isn't. And was it even healthy? You know, like a lot of the women that I work with, they look back on that. They're just such, such low body fat and no muscle mass that it's not healthy at all it looks a certain way it mm. looks like you know fashion models are fashion models healthy i can tell you no i worked in the fashion industry they're not right. healthy and there's a reason why they're also thin um and you know i was that thin once and i can tell you how i got that thin <laughs> um it's it's not healthy yeah. um and so yeah we have to give up these ideals i think the um there's a couple more things that i wanted to talk about with you one was um fats because we touched on proteins and we touched on carbohydrates and we're touching on fats and we've come around i think but then maybe not so much we're talking about fat is good for you when we need fat but there's a huge misconception about what are the right types of fats mm-hmm. uh, we did go into an in-depth in an episode with matt blackburn um on healthy fats in inverted commas but i really want to talk with you specifically about fat and men's hormones and body compositions and that kind of thing. So let's delve into fats. Yeah. So assuming that someone's familiar with either that episode or, you know, I'm sure you've discussed it before, as far as the polyunsaturated fats we're told are healthy, really not being the healthy fats and the saturated ones being the healthier fats. And I'm happy to kind of to dig through that if, if you'd like, but we see that play out uh, in 
like kind of like we see it play out with energy in every area. We see the same thing with polyunsaturated fats and saturated fats in every area. And so we talked about it in uh, in the liver health episode about how detrimental the polyunsaturated fats are. How they drive the progression of fatty liver disease. How saturated fats protect against that. They protect against injury from alcohol and and on from there. And we see the same thing when it comes to uh, men's hormonal health and the production of testosterone, for example, where for one, you just see looking at the diet that having a lower polyunsaturated fat to saturated fat ratio. So if you're eating less polyunsaturated fats and more saturated fats, that's associated with higher testosterone and then vice versa. If you have more polyunsaturated fats and fewer saturated, that is associated with lower testosterone. And then the other thing too, is you see that in the same way that the polyunsaturated fats cause oxidative stress in the liver, and this causes the progression of fatty liver disease and prevents the output and exportation of fat from the liver and prevents effective uh, energy production. The exact same thing happens inside of the testicles where testosterone is produced. And so when you introduce polyunsaturated fats there, it increases oxidative stress and reduces testosterone production. And then vice versa, if you include the saturated fats, it supports uh, it supports testosterone production there. And then the other piece of it, which again, same thing we saw in the liver, is that if you introduce vitamin E in that situation, it protects against the damaging effects of the polyunsaturated fats and reverses that decrease in testosterone production. So we have that same full picture here between the PUFA and the saturated fats just very clearly showing that the PUFA on every level, including this one, are not supportive of our health. Uh, so that would kind of be the first part. And then the second maybe to dig into is how much fat is ideal dietarily. Well, I think that what it comes to mind with that is I have a lot of clients who say to me they need to cut calories and lose weight when they actually have a diet that's really high in PUFA. So they can have this physical composition of looking like this extra adipose tissue around the chest and the stomach. So I see this super common. And so men, men simply go, oh, I have too much, I have man boobs and I have a gut and so I need to cut calories. When actually we need to have a look at the types of food that you're eating and um, I guess it's like, you know, people not realising how much poofer is in grain-fed meat compared to grass-fed meat and simple changes, you know, and unfortunately this push towards plant-based diets is pushing up PUFA. And so yeah, when we talked about that a lot, Matt and I, about how these PUFAs can actually be in health foods and it's about the balance. Um, and you can always do an experiment. I really like chronometer because it does... Um, using that as a food tracker because it does show you your ratio of saturated fat to polyunsaturated fat. So it's always a good yeah. experiment to look at that and go, well, actually maybe I don't need to cut calories. Maybe I just need to change the types of fats that I'm eating. Um, and, yeah, this is a huge one. I've seen a lot of men get their libido back, change their body composition just from changing the types of fats that they eat and the ratios of fats, not cutting mm -hmm. calories. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And these are the fats that again are the drivers of hibernation in in animals. You know, when we uh, look at hibernating animals and obviously we're not using our reproductive systems too much when we're hibernating and uh, we're dropping our metabolism down. I mean, that's what these fats are are you know kind of designed to do both in the seeds and then also in the animals that they feed. So, mm -hmm. so how would you tell because another problem I see with men, especially if they're eating a lot of meat, is uh, too much fat in the diet. 
in terms of being grass-fed meat but still eating too much fat in terms of ratios. Can you talk a little bit about the fat? I mean, you could go into the Krebs cycle, I guess, a little bit and the, the, the role of bal- the balance of macronutrients and how we need to do that. Yeah, so when it comes to fat intake, uh, there's... I think in the you know within the bioenergetic sphere, a lot of people are calling for low-fat diets. Uh, maybe ten to twenty percent of fat intake. Sometimes maybe a little higher. Kind of depends. Uh, of course, a lot of people coming from low carb, carnivore, keto, all of that. Talking about very high-fat diets. Uh, my recommendation tends to be in the range of twenty to forty percent fat intake. Mm-hmm. That is a pretty wide range, but there's reason for that. So. As far as you were kind of suggesting, I think with the the Krebs cycle and and so I just want to at least provide my take here, which is one of the main things that is cited in the bioenergetic sphere for why we want to decrease fat intake is the Randall cycle that basically says that while any mitochondria is uh, producing energy from carbs, it can't produce it from fat. There's a bunch of uh, different uh, mechanisms that stop the burning of fat while you're burning carbs and then vice versa. If it's burning carbs or burning um, fat, it has various things that decrease the burning of carbs. Now I think that the, so then the extension is don't eat fat and carbs together or don't eat too much fat. If you're having carbs, you don't eat too much carbs. If you're having a lot of fat. And I think that there's a, there are a few problems with that extension. The first one just being that, when we're talking on an individual mitochondrion level or on a cellular level, uh, or even on a tissue level, that doesn't say anything about other mitochondria, other cells, other tissues. So for example, of course, one, let's say one muscle is uh, just using fat as a fuel at rest. That doesn't mean that every other muscle in the body doesn't mean that every other organ in the body has to be using fat as a fuel. So we can partition fuel where just as a, as a crude example, taking a meal with fat and carbs, the carbs get taken up by the brain and liver. The fat gets taken up by the muscles who are using it at rest or th- that are using it at rest and we're fine. And it doesn't matter that we took in both at the same time or that there was a high percentage or a moderate percentage of both at the same time. Uh, so I think that that's kind of one issue. Another kind of uh, just kind of side issue with the Randall cycle being a reason not to do these things is just that any cell or tissue can only be burning anything at any one moment. Uh, that doesn't mean that it can't switch at the next moment. So a muscle can burn fat for five minutes and then carbs for five minutes or, you know, and on and on from there. And so we always want to be keeping time as a, you know, as, as a variable, as a factor. And so I think when you consider those kinds of things, the whole idea that you don't want to be having them together doesn't, uh, to me, it doesn't make much sense. I don't think that's really a viable reason why not to have them together. But there are some reasons to keep fat on the lower or higher end of that 20 to 40% range that I was referencing. Um, to me, they just don't have to do with the Randall cycle. So, and I think there's a lot of value to, to acknowledging pieces of the Randall cycle metabolically, but it, it's kind of a, a separate topic just in as far as how carbohydrates are better for energy production. But uh, anyway, so so as far as that range of 20 to 40%, for for one thing, we tend to see increases in testosterone production up toward that 40% range of fat intake. I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because that fat tends to be a major precursor of steroid hormone production. Uh, another is that taking in uh, fat can have some, uh, can basically have a carb sparing effect where 
when we, if we were to just take in carbs and have a very low fat diet, let's say that's going to require that, for example, even our muscles at rest are using carbohydrates as a fuel. And that's going to cause us to run out of carbohydrates very quickly and need to eat again very quickly soon after. I think that sometimes that can uh, cause someone to lean into a stress state a little bit. And the other being that too low of fat on its own will cause uh, adrenaline and, and stress hormones. So we talk a lot about blood sugar being low, causing an issue. But when the free fatty acids in our blood drop too low, the same backup mechanisms are activated to increase fat release. And that's because fat is also used structurally. It's also used as a fuel in many cases. It's It's got its own purposes. And so if free fatty acids drop too low and your blood sugar is fine, that'll also trigger uh, adrenaline release, for example. So that's why I don't like to dip too low into fat. And so when, when it comes to that 20 to 40% range, I tend to lean higher in that range for people who have more muscle mass, are leaner, and are more active. And then I tend to lean lower in that range for people who have less muscle mass uh, or are less active or are having trouble with glucose metabolism. That is another scenario where I found that uh, it can be helpful to, to keep the fat lower. Again, for me, lower, I'm still looking at at least 20% of calories from fat. I think that below that, I tend to see symptoms, like I tend to see stress symptoms in most people. Yeah, I would agree with that. I would agree with that, especially that I work mostly now with people with metabolic issues that tend to go down to the 20% fat. And as they get help, as their metabolism recovers and rebuilds, we can increase fat intake for sure. Um, but yes, I've definitely seen people under eat fat <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, yeah, but it's getting those right types of fat. And I think we should touch on here fish oil because I think a lot of people are wanting to, and there's a push, there's a huge push. I mean, is that, I was at the chemist the other day, like we have these big chemist warehouse chain stores in Australia and mm -hmm. there was like an entire row of fish oil. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I definitely, you know, I was did the whole Poliquin, Charles Poliquin thing and uh, mm -hmm. took a lot of fish oil in my time. <laughs> and we touched on it a bit with Matt, but let's just touch on it here in terms of men's health and because there's a huge push for it, at, especially at the moment with, like, neurodegeneration and for men. Yeah. Like, they're targeting it towards men. So And heart health too. Fish. Yes. <laughs> Which is a huge one that, again, targeted toward men especially who are tending to have, you know, to be more likely of, of heart attacks and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah there's so we talked about all those issues with PUFA and those are very much the case when it comes to fish oil being the most, basically being the weakest of the polyunsaturated fats being the most susceptible to damage. Uh, it, anything that is happening with PUFA is going to happen to a strong, uh, you know, strong extent with fish oil. And so, yes, we're told it's heart healthy. It's important for our brain and on and on. And in reality, uh, it tends to be one of those primary drivers of lipid peroxidation, you know, an oxidative stress because of that, uh, it tends to disrupt energy production, tends to suppress our immune system, uh, decrease energy, you know, decrease energy production, both because when it's used as a, as a structural component, it doesn't work very well due to that weakness. It, it causes permeability in the mitochondria, uh, but also because of a direct effect of the oxidative stress, which turns off our energy producing system. So all around, it's pretty effective at driving the factors that keep testosterone low and stress hormones high. Um, and it's also the byproducts, the, the 
the peroxides, like the, the damaged lipids, the damaged fish oils are the ones that are seen in high amounts in plaques and arteries. They're the ones that are seen in high amounts in the brains of people who have Alzheimer's and other neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative conditions. And when you're taking these fish oils in, they're so, so susceptible to oxidative damage that it's almost a guarantee. I would argue that they're, that that's going to happen. And so, mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think the idea of increasing them is yeah, just not based in uh, actual physiology, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, this is where we have to like get really good at reading research because there's heaps of studies yeah. that promote fish oil, but there's context to those studies and there are just as many studies that are against fish oil. So like, I, I, I think you spend a lot of time researching and um reading all those it's 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 almost like you need to do a degree on how to read research i think <laughs> yeah no seriously <laughs> i think there's the the, the um, yeah it's not something that most of us are taught or or really no, yeah and, and it's it. very easy to get swept away in a headline or or like a very basic article and not really be able to decipher what's what's right and what's not well, yeah, that's very true right now. Um, so, <laughs> but let's go into other supplements here because I think there are, what are the, what are the supplements that you're seeing men use? So there's, I mean, there, there's a few that I think are worth talking about. I mean, some of the most common are some of the vitamins and minerals, magnesium, zinc, vitamin D. Uh, you also have some of the herbal ones like, um, what is it, Sistanch and... Uh, there's uh, Tonka Ali. I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly, but anyway, there's, there's a handful of herbs that people use. Another one that I want to make sure we touch on is TRT testosterone replacement therapy. I think that that's 100%. becoming very, very common and popular, but yeah. So there, I would say when it comes to like vitamin and mineral supplements, magnesium, zinc, and vitamin D are the most common, common ones to suggest for increasing, you know, improving hormonal health. And there is something to be said for deficiencies in any one of those being a problem, right? And, and uh, potentially reducing the production of steroid hormones. Um, but I think most people over supplement in general, and I tend to I, I tend to be pretty judi- judicious with the supplements I have someone take, where basically every supplement has a particular reason, and if we're not seeing a result there then I tend to have someone stop using it because it, uh, I think it, it's too easy to cause imbalances. And uh, also people end up just taking a million things and not really knowing why or what's working. Mm, I think so. Yeah. So, so again, for someone who's deficient in zinc, I think there's value in getting enough zinc. I'd much prefer to get it from something like oysters than to get it from a zinc supplement. And from what I've seen, that tends to work way better. Mm. uh, You know, if someone is exhibiting a symptom there. And so, if someone is coming to me and saying that they, you know, and they're dealing with issues that suggest this sort of hormonal imbalance, I would definitely make sure to be checking some of those boxes. So zinc, ideally from oysters, fat soluble vitamins, liver is a is really great source there of vitamin A, which we need to produce steroid hormones from cholesterol. Uh, but also things like vitamin K can be helpful. Vitamin E is one that is pretty tough to get dietarily without getting poofa with it. So that's one that I think can be valuable to supplement. We talked about how that protects against the oxidative stress from PUFA. So that's one way that it's really helpful, but it also opposes estrogen in many ways and helps to support the production of the androgen. So that's a, that's a great one all around uh, generally. 
Uh, as far as again, something like magnesium goes, prefer to be getting it from diet. Uh, I think some people can have benefits from supplementing it for a period of time, but uh, it's not something I've necessarily seen to help all that much when it comes to these sorts of hormonal issues. And of course, way before supplementing, everything we talked about getting you know getting enough calories in, enough carbs and fat in, the right types of fats, reducing uh, intestinal irritation and endotoxin production, those things have way, way more of an effect than these supplements will um, in, in the vast majority of cases. And I think as you were kind of saying earlier, people want the quick fix. And so these there's so many of these uh, t- testosterone boosting supplements that are you know meant to be that kind of quick fix. And I think they very, very rarely have any sort of noticeable benefit. And it would be way better, albeit a little bit tougher to make some of the uh, dietary adjustments to work on getting enough sleep, which I think is huge, absolutely huge, uh, to work on uh, reducing stress. One that I did mention was vitamin D, which again, I think getting enough sunlight, like getting vitamin D from sun exposure, uh, certainly is pretty important there and would make a big difference. So yeah, that's my general thoughts on the vitamin and mineral Mm. type supplements. Yeah, I would agree with you. I think I use them specifically for a point in time, especially if someone's in a chronic stressed state and also at that that point where they just don't know enough about food or don't have the environment in their life set up to do enough with food yet because sometimes supplementing you know different things can help them feel better so they can Mm. think about and make space to create the lifestyle and the environment needed um but i think there always has to be an end point 100 and we you know as a practitioner, I'm always looking at their food and are they getting it all from food? Can we stop taking the supplements now? I agree with you. Vitamin E is probably one that everyone needs to take. Um, and I think a lot of it too is not understanding food combinations, you know, mm. what foods to eat with what. Like having coffee, for instance, with meat is very beneficial. Having, you know, um, not having orange juice and liver at the same time and you know just starting to plan your meals out so you're actually getting the most benefit from the types of food that you eat and when you eat them and um, using things like adrenal cocktails and there's so many ways that you can use food to increase your vitamins and minerals I really I had to I have to share this with you though because I was I have a client in the US and um, it's really hard to get oyster supplement at the moment and probably because the current situation that we're in, they're talking about zinc a lot, which is great, and you do need to increase your zinc. And uh, the only oyster extracts that I could find for her that were available on Amazon were all um, advertised, marketed towards men. <laughs> interesting. It was so interesting. It was like increase your libido and increase your muscle mass and all this sort of stuff. And so yeah, we have yeah. this little joke, her and I, like when she took her oyster actor, did you grow a penis? Are you okay? Because <laughs> <laughs> they were so, and I'm like, seriously, it's just oysters for men and oysters for women. But it, it makes me think yeah. about how much marketing is part of this whole thing, oh, yeah. right, and how we're all sold into that. So, yeah, I'm with you, definitely oyster supplements and liver supplements because people generally don't like to eat those um but diet always first 100 percent, 100 percent. um i feel like i feel like the guess the one thing we should talk about was how much people should train 
Yeah. I think we've talked about over exercise a lot, but right. what is an appropriate amount of training? I mean, to get a, to st- a stimulus to grow muscle, it's a certain type of stimulus that we need to create. And I think that's misunderstood and people not understanding that it's just more. Right. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I think that is, yeah, the tendency is always toward more and excess and that can, provide an opposite signal uh, in general, in general, it, this is going to vary with where you're at metabolically, right? So you could force muscle uh, muscle, like increases in muscle mass by working out a lot and using steroids and whatnot. Uh, but if you're doing like, if someone is instead focusing on their metabolic health, the need for the stimulus goes down considerably. And so, I mean, I, I, the, the one thing I like to say, as far as, um, trying to determine what is too much is normally if you're feeling too tired after, like if you're feeling very tired the rest of the day, or you have any fatigue into the next day, that's a sign of too much exercise. Uh, in general, when it comes to like a stimulus here, if we're just talking in terms of resistance training, normally three days a week, uh, as long as you're having at least some period of time to target each body part, of course, not ignoring the major ones like your legs, uh, and also back, which <laughs> those two together make up 70% of our muscle mass. So if you're spending like two to two of those days on arms and then one day on, <laughs> on the rest, uh, you're certainly missing out. And of course, the important thing there too, is that when you get that stimulus in certain muscle groups, there are systemic effects as well. And so, uh, missing out on leg day will also cause reductions in your upper body gains as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it can be as little as, you know, three resistance training workouts, maybe of the actual training, like only 30 minutes, I would say that's more than adequate. Um, I think it's also fine if you wanted to do four workouts of like 45 minutes or so, I think somewhere in that range is probably optimal for muscle building, but also you don't have to resistance train with, you know, in a gym in order to put on muscle. I think, um, any sort of movement if done well should you know, if done well and you're in a good metabolic state should allow for some increases in muscle mass, whether it's just a sport, um, or you're doing some sprints or like running around with, with your dog or swimming. Um, any of those things should allow for some increases in muscle mass as well. So, yeah. And of course with those, it's tougher to uh, quantify how much running around with your dog equals enough stimulus to, (laughs) to build muscle. But, um, yeah, I guess I think, I prefer to leave those things to desire and like, I think listening to our own signals tends to mm. lead us to a good amount there, like the the right amount. Mm. I think like, I, I mean, I find this personally, even as a woman, when I weight train and I put muscle mass on, I have an increase in libido. Mm. Like it's, there is a, there's almost like a surge when I'm at a really good point where I have muscle mass and I'm training, which I don't get if I was like running and doing yoga and you know so i think there's there's a lot of indicators from our body that we're in a good place um yeah. but in terms of cardio what do you think about cardio for men because i know especially in this corporate scene there's like cycling and running it's like and triathlon and you know what yeah. <laughs> how much it, well, Libby and I talk a bit about cardio. We're going to be doing an episode on 
exercise intolerance and how we use cardio specifically. So I think cardio has become a really bastardized thing of the fitness industry because now it's almost like if you're stressed, you can't do any cardio whatsoever. Um, so there's a balance, right? What do you think about cardiovascular exercise for men? Yeah, so it, kind of what you were getting at earlier with a lot of the cycling and and like the the low intensity endurance training, it tends not to be conducive to, especially to muscle gaining muscle mass. I, I think there's also tends to be a cost metabolically because of how much energy ends up being directed and contributing toward that activity. Um, and that comes at a cost, but yeah. So in general, I'd say, I think low intensity cardio doesn't help muscle mass wise. That doesn't mean any amount is going to be a detriment either. Um, but I certainly wouldn't be focusing on it as a way to put on muscle. Uh, that doesn't mean there's no place for it. And of course, there's also like when we're talking about a sport or walking or hiking or something that is not so different from low intensity cardio. But I, I think there are enough differences that um, that do have an effect. Again, I, th- I think what we're really coming back to is an amount and I think they're like, of course, too much is a problem. I think too little movement is a problem. Um, so again, kind of finding that sweet spot, I it's a tough one to say. I mean, 20 minutes a day can look very different from one person versus someone else. But um, I, I don't think in general, one of the ways I would suggest somebody puts on muscle would be to go, you know, go on the treadmill or elliptical for a certain period of time every day. I don't think that's generally too conducive to... And the same in the, um, I think one of the things that people tend to do first when they feel like they need to get fit and lose weight is they go run and uh, not realizing that this, without building up a recovery base and an aerobic base, this can be a really, really stressful thing on the body. So, and then that weight loss that you're experiencing is not just fat loss, but it's muscle loss as well. And so, yeah, it's a balance. I think that walking is really underrated, massively, massively mm-hmm. underrated. Um, and, and yeah, cardio has been bastardized. So I think, it's, I think it's good to work with a coach who can teach you how to use different energy, utilise different, different energy systems and understand like working at different heart rate zones for recovery and fitness and stuff. But it, it, I find that cardio, I don't really like clients to focus on it as a body composition exercise. More right, as a, right. yeah, heart health and aerobic capacity. And But there are nuances with that. So a lot of my clients actually walk and do nasal breathing drills. And so it's you can use cardiovascular exercise to stimulate a rest and digest state and get us out of the stress response. Um, but then you can also use cardiovascular exercise to increase your health at higher intensities at other times. So, yeah, I think it's just right, really important to work out what your goals are. And something that, you know, I always say to everybody is you can have everything, but you can't have it all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so if you want to lose weight, but you want to put on muscle, like it's, you can do it to a point at the same time, but if you really want to put on muscle, you can't lose weight, a significant amount of weight at the same time, right? Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I, th- I think it tends to depend on the approach. Uh, I, I guess, yeah. I mean, I'm 
the, the way that I'm normally viewing, um, you know, viewing the trajectory when I'm working with clients is, is to, is it's from some sort of low metabolic state toward a higher one. And then the body composition that changes throughout can really vary based on what someone's doing as far as training goes. I guess, I guess what I'm kind of saying is I don't normally focus on like a, a fat loss phase anyway. Mm. Um, it's rather, if I think that, like, I think that if somebody is not losing fat, there's a reason for it, right? Yeah. Something that is going on digestively, something that's going on hormonally, something that's going on nutrient wise. And so I'm always working to sort out those things. And then I guess I see the weight loss as a byproduct of that. And so I think, I think you can have by, like a situation where the byproduct of that is both fat loss and muscle gain, but yeah, I'm, I guess it's like a, I'm not looking through it through that same paradigm. So yeah. Yeah. That's more of a body composition focus. And, but I think there's, yeah, there's a huge difference between understanding that when you're in a deficit, are you losing fat or are you losing muscle and an appropriate amount of weight to lose at a time? What would you say if your clients is an appropriate amount of weight to lose? Yeah, I'm normally looking at no more than a pound a week. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. Like half a kilo a week in kilos is yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so a lot of people are impatient with that. Like, uh, you know, like some of my clients or myself, like I average like 300 grams a week, and they're like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> but it's working within the range of can, how much weight can I lose before I start affecting my metabolism. So. You know, find some people will lose half a kilo a week and their metabolism will be fine. And some people can only lose 300 grams a week because otherwise they start, you start seeing a change in their body temperature and sleep and stuff like that. So I think it's, um, it's all relative, right? Absolutely. Yeah. It's all relative. So again, um, Jay, I'm so grateful you came on the show. I really encourage everyone to go and listen to Jay's podcast because he has a whole series on men's health which is really, really interesting. But I hope we gave you today a bit of a synopsis of a general kind of over, oh, no, we can't finish yet because we didn't talk about testosterone replacement and we need to talk about it because I'm hearing about it more and more too. I'm so glad I looked at my notes quickly. Let's talk about testosterone replacement because it is becoming really popular. Um, what, have, what have you seen and what are you reading in the research? Yeah. Yeah. I'm seeing it become as, as popular as, as you're mentioning. Like it's, it's not only is it becoming popular, but it's becoming more normalized. It seems in uh, kind of mainstream culture or at least like more fitness oriented, but it's becoming a more mainstream, like more widely accepted as, as a, just a viable thing to do as you start to lose your uh, you know, your virility, you know, over time, once you start to hit your thirties, it's time to start replacing that testosterone that you lose, you know, <laughs> as if there is nothing else that can affect that. And you just need to replace this testosterone. Uh, of course, a lot of parallel things here with, uh, with women's health as well. Mm, um, yeah. And, and so, yeah, I, I think it's becoming a popular band-aid approach. And unfortunately, a lot of the people I've seen who have done or like have been on testosterone therapy, especially for a long time, really struggle to get off of it, start to really get tired of side effects from it. And uh, I think that alone is a reason why it's not the best approach, not to mention the fact that, again, it's very much a band-aid. It's, 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 
it's the same allopathic approach of looking at lab work and seeing high cholesterol and giving someone a statin for it, where it's completely ignoring what is leading to that elevated cholesterol in the first place and just treating low testosterone or low free testosterone or low DHT by adding that in and whatever amount is required to, to bring it back up. So, the, I mean, in essence, that is the biggest issue I see with it is that this, that we're not actually considering the things that have dramatic effects on testosterone production. And we're also not considering the abnormality health-wise of decreases in androgens as we age. That's that that's not supposed like that is not supposed to happen. I'm saying that in, in quotes, but like that is not the sign of metabolic health. Instead, the sign of metabolic health would be continued androgen production into older age. And I will say I've seen that too. I've seen that in in 70 plus year olds who have who are you know eating well and have pretty great lab numbers mm. as far as androgens go and are also able to maintain good amounts of muscle mass and um you know and on from there. And, and so I think that that's my biggest issue with it is that we're really ignoring all the things we talked about today as far as carbon take, types of fats, uh, calorie intake as a whole, how much we're training, and two of the huge ones that we've talked about are stress and lack of sleep and everything that goes with those things like this insane amount of mental effort and stress that we put on ourselves for work and whatnot, uh, which I think is really degrading uh, health-wise. Mm-hmm. What about the feedback mechanism with testosterone? Like if you supplement with testosterone, do you lose the ability to make your own testosterone? So there is a feedback effect, which happens with most, uh, with most uh, hormones, most, most anything in the body that, we're, that we can make ourselves is that when we have enough of it, it there's a, a negative feedback loop that says, hey, we've got enough and it turns off our own production of it. And so that certainly happens with, testosterone, like when someone takes it, it'll turn off the body's own production. And uh, so you'll see, you know, very low LH and FSH as a result, uh, being two of those signals that allow for, for reproductive hormone production. Uh, it should be, again, if someone's metabolically healthy, which normally if you're going on testosterone and then relying on that testosterone for your metabolic health, for you to have enough energy and whatnot, typically that means that what's underlying is not going to be metabolically healthy. And so I think it's much harder to then come back from that and produce your own testosterone. They do talk a lot also about downregulating the androgen receptors and whatnot. So you become less and less sensitive and downregulating some of the processes that allow for the production. And so kind of the narrative there is this is, you're going to be on this for the rest of your life and you can't get off. And that's not something I really agree with. I think if someone sorts out their metabolic health, they can get mm-hmm. off. It's just, that's a little harder and requires more than just using a pill and then stopping a pill, right? It, this is a, mm-hmm. a a more complex approach again to a statin, right? Like you, you could say the same thing, looking at someone with cholesterol levels in a statin where their cholesterol is at, let's say 250, although even though not nowadays they'll prescribe it at 200 or whatever, but uh, someone's cholesterol is 250, they go on a statin, their cholesterol goes down to 150. And then if they stop going on the statin, it'll start climbing back up. If they haven't changed anything else, uh, you know, normally it'll climb up even faster. So I think it's kind of that same perspective that's being used for mm-hmm. something like testosterone and um but all of those things genetically that they talk about the the genetic effects you know turning on and off genes that goes on from steroid hormones and whatnot and the upregulation and downregulation of receptors and sensitivity i think all of that falls in the same adaptation zone and and can 
or different ways of just characterizing that adaptation. And it can go one way in the same way it goes the other way, as long as the inputs are, are there and are proper. And are you using like, are you using thyroid hormone with a lot of your male clients? Are you seeing thyroid dysfunction? I mean, thyroid, I mean, I work so much with thyroid, but um, it's, I think it's still generally seen as a women's problem mm. or more common for women to have thyroid issues. And, um, but Obviously, it's a problem with men too. What are you What are you seeing with thyroid? And yeah, I would probably say more common with women, but I still use thyroid quite often with men too, mm-hmm. and tend to see a lot of the same great benefits. And I think that's another example too, right? People are concerned about downregulating their own thyroid hormone production, which happens when you go on thyroid, but that doesn't mean it won't come back when you go off of it. But uh, yeah, it's still, again, with it being that top level kind of governor of metabolism, when someone's got the foundations in place, I think it can really help to act kind of like if we think that over time with our dieting or overexercise or low carb diets or fish oil, we've given our bodies a signal of a poor energetic, you know, energetic environment using thyroid acts as an opposing signal. So when we have the foundations in place, instead of waiting another 10, 20 years, of you know the equivalent of what we did to get to where we are, thyroid kind of speeds up that process. And I'm mm. oversimplifying here, but this is uh, that's kind of a, a lens through which I see it. And, I, and yeah, I think um, talking about androgens, talking about decreasing estrogens, talking about decreasing stress hormones, talking about improving libido, thyroid is is great for all of those mm, if used properly. If used properly, I'd agree. And I think this is the thing because I think you can go onto the Ray Pete forum and you can read in there and there are people taking like 20 different (laughs) supplements and if you don't have the or using you know jumping from one thyroid product to another or progesterone or you know aldosterone or whatever they're doing if you're not um restoring your metabolic function whatever you put in the system is just going to be another stress so you'll see people who have low thyroid functions and have low body temperature and pulse. And so they'll take a thyroid supplement, but then it'll actually be a burden on the body because the nutrition yeah. is not there to process the thyroid supplement or, or as well, I think just not taking body temperature and pulse and other physiological, physiological measures to ascertain whether that's the right supplement for you when you're on it. So people get a little bit lazy. They feel better. I'm not going to log anymore. I'm not going to take my temps and pulse anymore. And, and then two months later, they wonder why their thyroid hormone doesn't work anymore when it kind of really didn't work in the first place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was just a bit of a prop. Um, and so I think that's why, you know, uh, working with someone like Jay, if you're listening, um, you know, you guys, if you're being on this thyroid supplement or your endocrinologist has you on something that there's there's reasons why the medication doesn't work and a lot of that has to do with food and lifestyle and um so if you work with a practitioner who takes really good physiological measures you can really hone in on that and then you don't have to wait for blood tests as well to you know come back to you know because we did a whole episode on that but with tomo on why blood tests are sometimes not always helpful and <laughs> um, yeah, I think that's yeah, really important to listen to guys if you've if you're feeling like you're experiencing a lot of the symptoms that Jay's been talking about today but you've had blood tests because this is so common right you go to your doctor it's like I'm really tired I, I've lost my libido or you know if you're happy to say that or 
Um, and your doctor goes, oh, I ran a whole bunch of blood tests and there's nothing wrong with you, so just carry on. So that's a really yeah. interesting episode <laughs> for you to listen to on blood tests. But I really encourage you guys to listen to Jay's podcast. Um, get in touch with Jay if you want to work with him. You are taking on clients right now. I just like. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Re- reach out. I mean, I, things are pretty full at the moment, but uh, it fluctuates. So. Yeah, yeah. It always um, fluctuates. But um, yeah, listen to Jay's podcast. There's a whole series on men's health. Um, how many episodes was that? Like eight episodes? That one I think was a little shorter. Maybe it was like five yeah so if you want to get more in depth as to what we're talking about today is you know if you're listening and you're like oh i have some of those symptoms um you know if you're listening and your your husband has some of those symptoms or partner jump on and have a look at jay's podcast um so thanks so much for coming onto the show can you just um let everyone know what your your website is and your instagram handle so people can find you yeah thanks for having me layla uh it's a fun round too <laughs> my website is uh, it's jfeldmanwellness.com. Uh, my podcast is the Energy Balance Podcast. And uh, on Instagram, it's the letters JF Wellness. Awesome. Thanks so much, Jay. I really hope that the men feel held and understood now because <laughs> we spent so much time talking about women stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for and sure. That, I hope so. And that there's something for them. And, um, especially that emotions part right I was thinking about it which because you know my my husband was having some issues with his mood after food and what we did was just bring his fats down a little bit and increase his protein and he's much more less you know experiencing less mood outbursts so I think that is a big one I hope there's a lot there seems to be a lot more movement going around with men like paying attention to their emotions and stuff as well so huge one to think about anyway Thanks, Jay. I could talk to you all day, but <laughs> you probably <laughs> need to go to bed me. and I sent my daughter to school. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. I'm Lena Lutz and you've been listening to The Body Never Lies. If you haven't yet, please go to your favourite podcast app and subscribe, rate and review this podcast. All the resources and references from this episode are waiting for you on my website, Leela Lutz. Dot com. Just click on podcast and look for this episode. Now join me next week for another episode of The Body Never Lies. Thank you so much for listening.